hello everybody. Uh, episode 19 with uh, the infamous Joe Hubbard. And 19 means we can drink in Canada. <laughs> oh wait, you, I'm not in Canada, sorry. That's what we think about when we're in Michigan because we're like, oh wait, you're 19. Two hours away, you can go drinking. Dude, that's funny. Oh wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. Really? Oh. And you drive I learned over. something today. That's I learned something. Yeah, and that's, um, before we go on to Joe, who are we brought to by, to John, who are we brought to by today? Well, first, we are joined, or brought to by uh, our good buddy Ross over at Golden State Coffee Roasters. I'm out, but it's my last yes. hey, I as, as the two guys saw my uh, email yes. this, earlier this week, I had some terrible news in that I ground the last of my Balboa. So probably in the next that's week the or darkest, so. That's the darkest row, right? The I Balboa think so. Is the yeah. yeah, it's good. I think so. I think I'm, I'm pretty, pretty set where my, I, I'm liking what, I, what ones I'm going to order next time. So I'll be hitting that up next week. And I will be using our code BIGBOTTOM15, which you can use either in, um, uh, online at goldenstate.coffee yep. or it, as Steve said, you can do it at their place in beautiful downtown Placentia. Yes, beautiful. It's a great place. Big bottom one five. Big bottom, Big bottom one, five. one five. Yes. All right. And uh, who else are we brought by? Brought to by? Wait, huh? Brought to you by? Because we know the professional, and we all to school for this, right? Yeah. Totally. Totally. Sponsors. Can't you tell? Our other sponsor. Yes, A Designs. A Designs. As ready. always do. Ventura, ready. Ventura, the ready. Yeah, staples in all of the uh, staples everywhere. Yeah, that ready is the shit. Pete Montesi, A Designs, audio.com. Best tube DI, my favorite tube DI on the planet. Yeah. Peter, thank you. And Killer Mike Prees, you have the Pacifica. I've got the Ventura. Um, it's just I'm incredible. setting up this room for for that too. Yeah. Yeah. So check them out. Montesi, he's one of the one of the best ever. Yeah. Great uh, engine. Yeah. Uh, and then who did we uh, who do we have today? Tony. Uh, Joe Hubbard, the infamous Joe Hubbard. Man, this probably is our longest episode yet. You're studying that. I'm studying the chord tone mastery. Oh, there's my notes. Joe Hubbard has uh, been around for a long time, has played with, I mean, some of the biggest greats. He's an educator, educator's educator. Right. Really. That, and, I mean, the people he's educated as well is just jaw-dropping. Yeah. It, I have, yeah. And one of the nicest guys. I, oh, me, super I was, cool. Yeah. I mean, he was Pino's teacher. Right. <laughs> so rad. I, I mean... Him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I just, you know, he's so passionate about it. And the way I just, I just, I could have listened to him talk more, man. It was. Really oh, yeah. So, you know, sat cross legged down in a semicircle with him right there, just telling stories. Yeah. That's won the audience uh, in a good way. This oh, is yeah. the longest episode as of. Yeah. It's a long one, but the stories are killer. It's worth it, and it's it's one of those that I, I don't think it felt even like. No, I could have kept on going, press the button, and let Joe go, because 
Yeah. He does a really fucking great job. Well, the yeah. thing is, is just his story, too, of how, I mean, he's been around for so long and he, you know, he kept reinventing himself, which I, you know, we always talk about that kind of stuff right. nowadays, you know, and so commendable. And he's just, you know, resiliency and doing hard shit and you got to do it and you got to grow. And, and then there's the big thing that I won't mention, but if you listen to the whole episode, you're in your ever question about your playing and whether what you're doing career-wise, just listen to what Joe has to say and the move he made and the move he did to come back. Yeah. yeah. And I won't say any more. Just listen yeah. to that. It's killer. It's awesome. Yep. All right, guys. So, uh, oh, yeah. And then BigBottomPodcast.com. We got Patreon. I'll put all the... Big Bottom yep. on Facebook. Yeah. Please give us a like on Facebook. Yeah, give us a like. And, um, yeah, just enjoy it. We had a blast. So and tell us what you like and tell us what you don't like. If you guys want to see right. something... You know, like we're open, like we're yeah, just yep. having fun. And if you there's something you want to see different or like or something, we're basically going to do whatever the fuck we want to. But your opinion, yeah, put in a request. A bit. We'll listen. We'll listen. We might not do it. Steve, you'll oh, listen. Steve. Steve, you'll listen, Steve. I'll listen. I might not do it, but I'm going to listen. <laughs> That's there's our Steve. John. John, there's always that one. Right. One. Right. But the, the nice thing, so we're going to be doing some episodes where uh, <laughs> we, we take some requests on subjects. Oh, like yeah. Gig bags, recording equipment. So we're going to start doing some of those bonus episodes, which is pretty cool, which um, we'll have fun just talking shit and <laughs> talking smack. So, all right, Big Bottom Podcast, Joe Hubbard. Joe Hubbard. 19. Um, somebody else start signing off. Somebody else sign off. This is oh, John was, Moody. Oh, oh, this is oh, that's John Moody. Uh, this is Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Araujo, Big Bottom Podcast. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time. Peace. Bye. What's up, guys? Tony, you do the you do the honors, my friend. You well, we have the of uh, the wonderful legend of Joe Hubbard with joining us today. He's in my bottom left, but who knows where he's going to be when we render this? <laughs> yes. Uh, a wealth of information and knowledge in the base community. And boy, does he's got stories, man. We chatted a little bit this morning, and I said, "Well, we gotta, we gotta hold up. You gotta save some way, of the stories. Way too good. Way too good." <laughs> wow, we're so, yeah, we're so yeah. stoked to have you, Joe. Uh, really, really, hey, thank you. Thanks thank for you. having me, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's awesome. Now you are in, uh, you're across the pond, as they say. You're in England, right? I am. Yeah, yeah. I live in uh, just outside of London. It's about an hour and a half. Okay. Southwest okay. of the city, you know, so. Yeah, I live out in the country now, so I love it. It's pretty, it's pretty chilled, and I live in a little village, and you know, I've got a studio. Uh, you know, that when I moved in this house, it had a double garage that I converted to a studio, but a proper like room within a room place had it wow. properly tuned and built. Yeah, so that's where I do all my videos. You can probably see there, and oh, I hell yeah. mm -hmm. they're fantastic. You're, you're, I mean, you're doing such a great, you, you always have and still are. And I, I love it, man. It's uh, Thanks, man. Such a great job with educating. And, and that's so important. That really is. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of, you know, um, when I started playing um, was when I was 18 and I moved to, I'd kind of played a little bit before, but not really, you know, and um we were living in uh, Fort Limworth, Kansas, and my, you know, my dad, I was an army brat, so my dad wanted me 
to go to college, that was kind of a prerequisite. It was like, you know, where are you going to college? And I was like, a friend of mine was going to Berkeley. So I said, well, what about the Berkeley College of Music? You know, and I didn't know what a C major scale was. And it just serendipity kind of was just in this whole mix because that was the first year, it was 1975, it was the first year that Berkeley decided that they were going to do a thing with no auditions and also that you could major on the electric bass. I believe that was the first year that you could do that. Wow. Um, because I think Jeff Berlin, I think he finished, he didn't go there long, but he was there the year before I was there. And he, or maybe a couple of years before I was there, mm. 73 or 74, but he, I think, was majoring on violin there. That's, and then he just played bass, really? you know, because, because he could play a good violin, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that was it, and 75 was the first year, but it was, you know, it was by luck for me because I couldn't play, and I showed up there. I remember having to do, they had uh, the proficiency tests, you know, when you went in. And, you know, uh, Rich Appleman was there. And uh, uh, I think um, uh, Neil Steubenhaus was teaching. Uh, the first semester that I was at Berkeley, Neil Steubenhaus was a teacher there. Bruce Gertz, John Neffs, oh. all, all some really great guys, you know. And, and then uh, and, and Neffs was my first teacher. And it's the sign of the times, like, John Neffs was like this old black guy who used to play with like Maynard Ferguson and Stan Getz. And, you know, he was, you know, I walked in like this green high school kid who couldn't play. And he said, well, you know, do do you play jazz? You know? And I said, "Mm, not really. Do you know any tunes? No. Mm. Uh, Do you know how to read music? No. He said, okay, that's where we're going to start. He looks out the window and there's that, you remember Bumblebee bookstore? I don't know if you, if that was still there when you, Tony. I remember, I do remember Bumblebee actually. It used to be a legendary bookstore that was there and that's where you bought everything. And he said, pointed that out to me through the window. He said, go and get Buddy Rich's Modern Time in 4-4, which is just a rhythm book. You know, we all knew it. Yes. And uh, and he said, and while you're down there, and this was like nine in the morning, he said, while you're down there, can you pick me up a six pack of Schlitz? And you know, <laughs> so, so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not kidding, man. You know, and what a so time I, period! What a time yeah, period! So I go down like nine in the morning, get the book, uh-huh. buy him the six pack, no bag, just walk through the de- base department at nine in the morning with a six pack, you know. Give it to him. He like pops the can and said, okay, let's get started. You know, <laughs> it's like insane. You know? But yeah, you know, those were the days, man. Yeah, Berkeley. Bruce was teaching back then? Bruce Gertz? Yeah, he was there. You know, he, uh, he was one of the first guys I checked out as well. And he had just graduated. And he was, he was teaching there. I think it was him. As I can remember, and you know, Steve Swallow might have still been doing a bit bits and pieces mm-hmm. there, when I was there, but I can't really, I don't remember him being around a lot. But it was Steuben House, Rich Appleman, John, and Bruce were the main guys. And maybe Whit Brown was another guy. And also there were some other guys, John Rapucci, but these were like upright guys, you know. And um, maybe there was a couple of other guys who were there, but People like Anthony VT didn't start till much later. You know, he yeah, started yeah. way after I left, I think, you know. But uh, 
But yeah, Steubenhaus. I mean, the, I have a classic story of when I was there at, with um, and Steubenhaus. I was having a lesson because I eventually kind of moved from John Neves mm -hmm. to, um, to Bruce as my teacher. And the reason I moved was he was a lovely guy, but I couldn't learn anything from him. You know, like he would, I would pl be playing something and he would go, yeah, it's kind of like an orange and you want to sound a little bit more grapefruit, you know? And I was like, dude, I can't yeah. connect with that. I need guidance. So, so I started studying with Bruce and then just started going out and getting drunk with John Neps, you know, like we used to go to bars and stuff together. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and you know, like, and that was where I learned the most from John, you know, just from hanging. Wow. But with Bruce, I was sitting in my lesson one day and there's a knock on the door and Steubenhaus, like, you know, Bruce answered and it was Steubenhaus and he looked like wrecked and he said, said, man, you know, I've been up all night long. Jocko just flew in last night and apparently him and Jocko were like really close. And he said, you know, they're working on a new record. Uh, and that, that was heavy weather. Oh. So, so um, he said, yeah, working on a new record. And uh, he said, man, he's, he had the cassette of Teen Town. He oh. said, Jocko brought some of the rough mixes, the cassette of Teen Town. And he said, after Jocko left, which was about three in the morning, I stayed up the rest of the night and transcribed it. So this is like, this isn't even out yet, man. Right. right. Oh. You know what I'm saying? And we're sitting there and like, it, it was kind of like, never mind that it was my lesson, guys. Yeah. You know what I mean? But right, I just, right. I thought, I don't care. This is important here, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. Listen to the track and Stube was like, kind of taking us through the chart of what he had done, you know? And it was just like insane times back then because yeah. so many amazing players at Berkeley at that time. Like, and if you think of the time, 1975, man, like, that was the year Jocko's record came out. And, um, you know, it was a special time for bass. Special time, you know. That I started with Bruce, too. And I had, I'm sorry, Steve, and I, and I had some funny Bruce stories. I went to him already an established gigging guy after leaving Berkeley, and he would be like, you have chops, but we're going to get mind chops. We're going to get mental chops out of you. Mental. And every time I saw me, he'd be like, we're going to experiment and get mental chops out of you. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, how long, when are these mental chops coming? You know, studying and reading, I could play. He's like, and it was the same thing. I kind of hit a brick wall with Bruce, you know, you know, no more mind chops. And then, you know, I kind of, I think yeah, he was the I guess he was he was a little bit different when I studied with him. He was more like, I guess maybe because he was younger, I don't know. But, um, you know, he was he was also into exactly the same stuff I was into. Like he was, when I remember going to a performance um, that he did, um, you know, it, for one of the senior recitals of somebody at Berkeley. And, you know, he sounded like, so much like Alfonso, like he had a precision bass and yeah. you know, like the way Alfonso was playing on like George Duke's The Aura Will Prevail. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That. And I was really into that sort of thing, you know, and I thought, yeah, man, like this guy's doing it all, you know, and he's playing great upright. But, yeah. you know, and I studied off and on with Bruce for quite a while, actually, you know, I because I went to Berkeley at two different stages. I went in 75 for two years okay. and then Somewhere along the line, 
a couple of the teachers there said, you know, you know what, you need to leave Berkeley now and go play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were talking about this earlier, uh, you know, how now no one would do that at any uh, established school, because that'd be like, right. you know, you're cutting off their funds, you know. But then it's like, a lot of the teachers there, that's the way it was. You know, you were kind of there, I guess they could see the people who were there to, uh, that had something in them, you know, I don't know, you know, cause I never really remember people who were time wasters at Berkeley. I'm sure there were, you know, I mean, there's huge mm-hmm. dropout rates, you know, when I went. That's what I was going to say, but, they probably dropped out and were just kind of gone. And Yeah, but I mean, everyone I was associated with were so into the journey of what they were doing there. So I left and I moved to Hawaii. And, uh, and then that's kind of where my playing career really started, was there. Mm. That's, well, it sounds, I mean, you were, it's like language, you were immersed. It was immersion and you just, I mean... I can't even imagine that. I mean, you were just a sponge with these monsters. You were part of this group, especially 7576, you know? I mean, dude, yeah. listening to Jocko's tape for the, before it was out, That's that was the mind-blowing, that heavy weather was, I mean, that changed so much, you know? It, oh, I know, I know. And it's like, you know, the it was such an exciting time, you know? It really was. I mean, there was so much going on and, and here's the weird thing, you know, talking about it in relation to today, because there's a lot of young guys and who want to learn and they, and, and, you know, now everything's connected with social media. It's a different environment completely. But the one thing that a lot of the younger guys now think that they can do is calculate their whole career from beginning to end. And you can't do that. And the other thing is that your motivation, in my opinion, has to be that you want to become a good player, that there's some connection with the music. You know what I mean? That you want. I mean, I, I've had students over the years that have shown up and I've gone like, hey, you know, so yeah, how long have you been playing? You know, like a year, you know, uh, what music are you into? I, I'm not really into anything. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. It, you know what I mean, like, 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 what are you here for? You know, it's like, you know, you, you have to have the interest. You have to want to do it. And back in those days, everyone wanted to. I mean, I remember my first year at Berkeley. Of course, I lived in the dorm. You know, you had to, you know. And uh, I met some girl who was a bassoon player. And she kind of, like, she had been there a few years. And she was like, yeah, you know, I'll introduce She's one of those friendly People, I'll introduce you to this guy and this guy. She came to my room one night. She said, look, we're going to someone's room. I want to introduce you to this guy. You know, uh, you'll appreciate this. And so knock on the door. And it's Kenwood Denard. Kenwood was was a senior. My first year, 75, he was a senior, you know, and he was like the most likely to succeed guy. He had just got the gig. He was still in Berkeley and he had just got the gig with Pat Martino. Remember that album? Uh, what was it? Joyous Lake. Okay. Do you remember that Martino album? If you haven't heard that, you got to go back. Because yeah. yeah. that was the bass player was kind of a functional guy, but um, it had Kenwood Denard and Pat and uh, Delmar Brown on keyboard. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Mm. You know, great band. 
and it was all fusion stuff and it was like pat kind of doing a fusion thing but um and and i remember uh i saw the last time i was at nam i saw kenwood and i stopped him and i said man i know you don't remember me but i gotta tell you about my first year at berkeley when i used to go to your room and hang with all the <laughs> other guys and used to kind of put on records and tell us what we needed to listen to and you know and and he he thought yeah wow that's really cool you know that mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you know that was useful and helpful but he was a great guy and i i mean on on my floor alone that first year there was kenwood and um tommy campbell mm -hmm. remember the drummer tommy campbell who played with john mclaughlin he was on bella horizonte and he was playing with Sonny Rollins for years, but you know, he's an incredible jazz drummer. And Kevin Eubanks, do you remember what? him? He was oh, the guitarist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so so Kevin and Tommy were roommates. Wow. Uh, I think they had kind of grown up together. They kind of knew each other when they went to Berkeley. Yeah. And Kevin used to walk around in the white uh, John McLaughlin shirt, you know, the Indian shirt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he wanted to be John McLaughlin, you know. Uh, you know, so he was trying to live that vicariously through, you know, the, the white shirt, you know, and the Indian sandals. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, so it was so cool. Like, I even remember being in a Mahavishnu kind of uh, band for a while with Tommy Campbell, you know, and, uh, you know, playing all those original tunes. And it, it's like so many of these guys, you know, we mentioned like Jimmy Earl was yeah. there. Um, uh, Heroes. Vi, uh, uh, although I didn't know him at Berkeley, but Stu Ham, I knew, you know, when he mm -hmm. was there. And, uh, you know, a lot of other guys like uh, Jeff Watts, you know, Jeff Tane Watts, who yeah, played yeah. with Winton's yeah. band, he was yeah. there. Uh, Gene Jackson, who's another great jazz drummer, was there. Uh, Curtis Williams, the keyboard player from Cool and the Gang, who's still playing with them, I think. Uh, he was there. There were so many guys, man. It was just like a kind of really electric vibe that so many people were into being great players. And Joe, then, did you end up doing the thing with Banakis? You end up studying with Banakis at all? Yeah, yeah. I studied, you know, I studied with him for a long time through his correspondence course. It was when I moved, when I went, I went back to Berkeley in 1979 and uh, did 79 to 80 and then left. Um, and then moved to LA for a while. And then I ended up getting a tour that was in Denmark. And then I ended up in England, you know, just hanging out, you know, and in those days, you know, it was a easier thing to do, you know, it was like pre 9-11 and there was, you know, it was a lot easier to just move somewhere and then stay there, you know? Yep. And so, um, uh, it was when I was in England for a good few years. Uh, I think I started with Banakis in 1986. And so I moved to England in about 81, I think. Okay. And, um, and I saw, in, I saw uh, he had, uh, Jeff Berlin had done a video for Starlicks. And he had a little ad at the end of that that said, you know, Charlie's doing correspondence lessons. And I had wanted to study with Charlie when I went back to Berkeley for the second time because Mike Stern was a guy who was really on the Boston scene at that time. And no one knew who he was outside of Boston, but he, everyone knew 
this guy is going to be a star. And of course, like, you know, he ended up, you know, joining Billy Cobbins van and then miles very quickly out of that whole thing. But he studied with Charlie, you know? So it was like, yeah, I gotta get, but like, you know, I inquired about it when I was there and it was like, yeah, there's like a three year waiting list, yeah, you know, yeah. like, man, yeah. I don't even know what I'm doing tomorrow, you know? So it was just, I just blew that off. But, uh, when I started with Monogas in 86, it was like, I was already an established, like first call guy over here. Sure, sure. And, um, you know, it was really a wake up call, you know, for me, because I wanted to really take, try to take my plane to the next level. And I thought I, I need someone like him. And he was like, yeah, yeah, man, I, 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 I dig what you're doing, but you know, a lot of the stuff you're playing is really predictable. So let's just start here. And he just started me on this like matrix of chromaticism hmm. that, um, kind of is the basis of the way I play now, you know, back then it was like, you know, it was so hard to get into it because I was so conditioned by scales, sure, sure. you know, even with Berkeley, cause you know, Berkeley was for the learning how to play. It was a scale place. They were big on chord scales. You know, and in difference to today, because there's still a lot of guys that, I mean, how many videos have we seen? Like, hey, let's take a look, another look at, guess what? The major scale. Whoa, can't you just do one other scale? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, let, can't let, can we just try like melodic minor today? You know, yeah. but no, let me do that major scale again. And the problem with a lot of guys today is no one knows any of the avoid notes to the scales. Mm. So it's like, you know, that's important because when you play a line, when you resolve your line, it needs to be to a chord tone or a chord tension. And if it isn't, it's not going to sound good. Like, you know, you, we all know this, whether you know the theory or not, if you've played at all and you're playing over a C major seven chord and you decide to start just playing some kind of a rhythmic, you know, vamp on an F natural, it's going to suck. Mm -hmm. And it will not work. It won't work. I don't care how hard you can groove. It ain't going to work. You know what I mean? So the thing is, is that nowadays no one knows that, you know, but in Berkeley with, you know, everyone there, you know, would do arranging, harmony, theory, ear training, you know, it was all that same, those same classes where everyone did that, you know, so drummers were like hip to arranging and stuff and, mm. Uh, you know, in the first year, you learned all the chord scales and all the avoid notes. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that's where a lot of guys today don't know. But Charlie's thing was like, no, it's all about the chord tone. Mm. So and when he said chord tone, he means root three, five, seven, but also nine, 11 and 13. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, depending on what chord it is, you know, because they alter. Right. So major seven, you have sharp 11. And that's the whole thing. So, so the, the idea is that, you know, with the notes that you play around those chord tones, you're going to have some scale information, you know, that's there, which is many, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can use scales, but um, within a lot of jazz vocabulary, it's used as, you know, either scale passing tones or diatonic approach notes. Mm -hmm. So scale passing tone connects two adjacent chord tones. So if I got root, 
to the third, the second is the scale passing tone, either ascending or descending. If I got three going up to five, the fourth is the scale passing tone, right? And then you have choices. So if I have a major seventh chord, I can play the major scale. So I can play that four as a scale passing tone. I just can't resolve to it. But I can also play the sharp four because that comes from Lydian, right? Mm -hmm. So, so the, the learning by scales, this is the one thing that I try to tell a lot of my students in the beginning is confusing because A, you have a lot of choices, right? You know, how many lists of scales have you seen? This, there's all the scales that work on a dominant seventh chord and you're like, man, what do I play? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and the thing is, is that a lot of it has to do with where you resolve your lines to. Yeah. It's, you know what I mean? And then the other thing has to do with if you can't see the chord in the scale that you're playing, you're screwed. Yeah. So, you know, let's take a half hold diminished scale, right? Okay. What are you playing that over? You're playing that over a dominant seventh chord. Why? Because the chord's in the scale. So you got the root, you got the three, you got the five, you got the flat seven. What are the notes in between? Flat nine, sharp nine, sharp 11, and 13. Okay. Do you see what I mean? So, and the thing is, is with that scale, you can resolve to every single one of those notes. You know what I mean? So it's then, you know, it's a kind of a cool thing. I mean, you know, when you start to look at a lot of guys, you know, cause James, the Jameson phenomena sort of, you know, kind of over the years became a big thing. Right. I remember going to LA in 1986 for about a year. I was doing some work over there and, uh, you know, me and my wife just moved over and got a, copped a little apartment and I was, you know, doing these various gigs while I, was, while I was there and then we came back. But while I was there, I met Phil Chen and Phil's, oh. never met him. He's like, oh, yeah. you know, Phil is like a total trip, man. Cause he's like, he, you know, he grew, he's a West Indian guy who's a Ch he's Chinese, but he grew up in the West Indies and then spent a lot of time in London, you know? So he speaks with like a sort of a Cockney English accent, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it's like, but he's got that West Indian thing going on with it and he's Chinese. So it's kind of like, wow, you know, this is tripping me out. But uh, I met- Sweetheart guy, he's a sweetheart. Oh, Phil, man, he's like one of my dearest friends. Man. We've had some great, great hangs. But, and I, I think I, you know, met him in a, uh, in a music store over there and he had bought my book bass lines, you know, that I put out in the eighties. And he sort of said, Hey, you know, <laughs> there it is right there. Man. Yeah. I don't even know, Joe, this book fucking changed my life. It, it, I think he does know, look at how it's kept, man. That's how books, that's how educational books should be. And, and I got to tell you, Joe, for caught like, I, uh, Chromatic Fantasy was, I played that for one of my recitals. I mean, all, I've, I've got fucking notes every, I, I'm telling you, Joe, this book changed my life and anybody out there, you need to get this fucking book. It is, uh, sorry, I, I, this near and dear to my heart, Joe, and I can't thank you enough for putting this out, but I wanted autographed just like that. <laughs> sorry. Maybe, maybe next time in them. Dude, exactly, but I mean, I, yeah, this is, this is like, this is one of the Bibles, Samandal, Raboth, 
this Louis Belson reading text baselines. Sorry. Okay, continue. I had to say that. I love yes, it. That's the other one. Yeah, that's the yeah. other one right there. That's, Which, that's uh, this is what I got into I during got uh, yeah during during quarantine. Yeah. So it's a little newer, but uh, I go through a handful of it every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's great. That's there's some great stuff in there, man. I mean, yeah. you know, it's all just like really good material, you know, but you know, I ended I studied with Charlie for like 10 years. Uh, and um, and I think I figured out like, you know, in those days uh, it was it was, you know, we he taught via cassette tape. Mm -hmm through the mail and the mail over here was really bad in those days uh surprisingly the mail in the states was great in those days and now it's terrible yeah yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> you know what i mean yeah but it's uh yeah. but the thing is it used to just take forever for me to get my lesson you know and i couldn't wait like i'd be waiting like is the charlie lesson come through yet you know <laughs> and uh so you know uh but he was just you know, it was insane when I first started studying with him because I thought I'm doing everything wrong. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta like change everything. I gotta change like everything I'm doing. So I tried to kind of wipe the slate clean and start over again, but it was really affecting my career. Cause you know, I was going on gigs and like people were saying like, you know, Hey Joe, like, you know, is everything all right, man? You know, mm. I'm really, don't really plan the way that you used to play like what's happening with you you know and i was going no man i'm into this guy man he's changing my life this is the shit you know and so i mentioned it to charlie and he said man you can't do that like you brought to the table a lot of stuff you know he said i don't want you to do that just add to it he yeah. said you gotta remember you are you and you have all those personal traits, you know, and all that stuff. And you built a career, you know. And uh, so, you know, he'd say, he was a wise guy. You know, one of the things he said to me is never confuse your artistic development with your career. It's a good thing to say. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. You know, wow. Never yeah. confuse your artistic I so regret getting on that list too late. You know, I remember talking to him and, and said, he's like, oh, you know, it's like two to three year right now. And he's not he was not far from where i live like in the north shore of boston you know it's in manchester and peabody it's like you know 25 minute drive or something like that so it's like oh, yes um but uh, he died during that time and i said to him i go man i should have done this 10 years prior and he's like I, everybody says that everybody <laughs> says that you know what i mean he's like everybody says they should have been here 10 years earlier and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he was like, you know, man, you know, he was the guy, you know, and um, and just a beautiful guy as well. You know, it was weird because in the in uh, the year two thousand, uh, and this had kind of started a few years before, you know, the year two thousand. I was starting to think about getting to getting out of music. You know, I was like. And, you know, it was a weird point in the the scene here because a lot of the things were going into the house music thing mm -hmm. and there was less and less gigs for electric bass players and a lot of bass players were starting to double on keyboard bass. And it was like, you know, and I just thought like, you know, man, and, that, you know, I was, I was having to take because the studio stuff was really diminishing. 
and I was having to take a lot of shitty gigs. And I remember like going on a gig where I got in the uh, got in the car and um, uh, drove, you know, like you know, four hours to the to the gig. Had to wear a cowboy hat while I was doing the gig. You know, ended up drinking too much on the gig. You know. <laughs> Oh. Drove home, and I, I didn't get home till like four in the morning. And I thought, like, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. I love music too much to continue. And I got out of music for ten years, and kind of went down a whole different career path. And um, and then what had happened was, you know, in t at the end of two thousand and nine, mm -hmm. I was just looking on Google and I don't know what came over me. I said, I got to Google Charlie Banacus. And I literally was out of music. I'd sold all my gear. I hadn't played a bass in 10 years. I hadn't touched an instrument. And, and I wasn't listening either. I wasn't into it. You know, I just thought, yeah, I'm just totally removed from anything to do with that part of my life. And I wanted to move on, you know? And uh, so, uh, I thought, yeah, let me just Google Charlie. And he had died three days before. Oh. And I remember, like, I had a good job. I had kind of gotten into the security industry. And, you know, I'm kind of a quite a trained martial artist. So I was running a martial arts business yeah. at the same time as, you know, I was doing, like, government-level con uh, security contractor stuff. You know, I was traveling to South Africa and to Belgium, I was doing all sorts of things, working as a bodyguard. I've done a bunch of celebrity bodyguarding stuff as well. And uh, so I had a good job, you know, and I came home one night and I said to my wife, I said, Charlie Benakis died three days ago. I'm going to start playing bass again. She was like, no, you're not. What are you talking about? <laughs> you're making money now. Like, what's... What are you talking about? Like, you know, how are you going to do that? Like, you don't have a base. You haven't touched a base in 10 years. How are you going to do that? And I said, I don't know, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I ended up uh, buying a, uh, a court uh, five-string base, which actually wasn't that bad. You know, it was kind of like a jazz bassist sure. copy. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. And, uh, and I got that, and I started, like, practicing because I was working a lot I was working like six, 60 hours plus a week you know with my job Jeez. so I was getting up at four in the morning every day and practicing for four hours and I had I've just taught myself my own system again you know because I had all my stuff you know all my stuff was in storage all my stuff and Charlie's stuff because a lot of my stuff see Charlie the way he taught you know he would give you like a sheet that you'd come through the thing or the sheet of music paper with one line with, you know, some things written and stuff. And then he'd tell you what to do with it, which there were so many permutations that you just wanted to kill yourself. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, you know, every time you did the lesson, you know, it was like, I would go, I would go, man, I can't wait to get the second lesson. And I get that second lesson. I go, damn, you know, a lot of stuff to do, you know, and then I couldn't wait to finish a subject. You know, because he would teach like a subject and it could last from anywhere to 10 lessons to 35 lessons. 
And when you finished the subject, I thought, wow, what are you going to give me next? Like, I can't wait. And then I get it and I go, oh, fuck me. You know, like, this is killing me. <laughs> me. Exercises where he would do what he would do. Call the piano, four finger, you know, eight fingers uh, on the piano. They'd be like, all right, I'm, I'm going to teach you how to identify these. Okay? Some of the stuff that he, he came up with was just insane. And the funny thing is, like, I still, like, when I got back in the plane, uh, I practiced for like a year every day for four hours. And it was at that stage that I thought, you know what, I'm going to put a website together and I'm going to try to get some people interested in studying with me via Skype. Yeah. And I got a couple of students and uh, then I did a, I, I sent a, a good friend of mine, a drummer called Pete Riley, he used to play with Guthrie Govan and a bunch of people. When he was a kid, he he wanted to play in my band. Mm. And it, it, his drum teacher was a good friend of mine. So, you know, I got him involved in my band for a while and ran him through the ringer, you know, and really put him through his paces. And so I got in touch with him and I said, hey, you know, you're teaching at this school called the Academy of Contemporary Music. Uh, can you get me like uh, a clinic there, you know? And he said, okay, I'll put you in touch with the guy who runs the bass thing. And so I get in touch with this guy called Nick Preston, who, unbeknownst to me, was a former student of mine. And <laughs> I didn't know, I couldn't remember him. Like, I didn't remember the name, you know. It was one of those scenarios, you know, and it had been a while since I had seen him. And so he was running the whole school. So he contacts me, he said, look, yeah, I can get you in for a seminar. I don't know if I can hire you, but I can get you for a seminar. So I thought, wow, I wasn't even asking him about a job. I was just asking if I could go and do like a workshop there, you know? So he gets in and he does it. Then he says, hey, I, I wouldn't mind getting you in again. And then he sent me an email and he said, look, I'm moving up to become the director of education here. And I need someone to come in and run this base department. And he said, and I need you to rewrite the whole curriculum. So you really need, and it was kind of a rock school, but when he was there, he was trying to change that because Nick is a very accomplished guy. He ended up graduating from the Royal College of Music and playing with a bunch of people. And, uh, and, and so it was just luck, you know? It was just like that. I tell a lot of my students, like, if your energy is to accomplish something and through your own personal practice, through that energy that it takes to sit down every day and be consistent, you're, it, you, you're the, you get things, it's kind of, I don't want to be corny and sound like it's the law of attraction, you know, that sort of thing, but it is kind of like that. You, you become kind of magnetic, you know, in attracting opportunities to yourself. And that's always happened to me. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, look, man, I mean, I was at the time over 50. I has been to many people because I had been off the scene for 10 years and I hadn't touched a base in 10 years. Wow. So I really wasn't, even though I had practiced that first year every day, um, I still was way behind the curve from what I used to be. So I got that job and I had it for four years and I used that job to get my plane back together. And through that period, and I still am doing this, I'm studying with Gary Dial, hmm. who is the guy who took over 
the Charlie teaching, you know, so he was groomed by Charlie to take over his teaching. So it's all, it's all like official, you know, it's a, he teaches for the, he teaches the advanced people for the Banakis family, wow. you know, and his daughter, Barbara will teach the sort of beginners to intermediate students because she's an amazing pianist That's amazing. and um That's and so um you know i had reached out to her after charlie had died and said you know i want to start studying again and she said yeah you need to contact gary because he's the one who could help you and so i still study with gary now and you know you know he's got me into like all the sort of coltrane 251 sort of substitution stuff and it's like it's insane. You're like Charlie, like you've, you, you've probably seen some of this stuff in various books, you know, where people say, you know, here's how to like use the Coltrane changes to play and substitute over this stuff. But you'd never seen it the way Charlie came up with it. Yeah. It's like insane. It's just like, you know, like it's talk about like the down the rabbit hole. Sure. You yeah. know, it's it, and I never seen this stuff and I've seen like a lot of stuff, you know, from different educators, but I never seen this because Charlie kept a lot of stuff. You know, you had to sign stuff, you know, uh, with him, you know, that you wouldn't rip him off, you know. And then Gary told me that um, uh, Charlie always taught everything out of order because oh. he didn't want his students to like find out the system. Oh, you know? didn't want his students to find his system out. You know, he didn't want them to stuff, you know, and it's kind of weird, you know, but you see the way I am with things, I found the systematic way that Charlie was delivering stuff, even though he was giving it to me out of sync, you know, just through years and years of like putting it together and trying different stuff. Yeah. I kind of figured it out. But, uh, but I said to Gary, and it's funny because, you know, when you know these whole train things they sound great but they sound better to me with um with like playing it over a one chord vamp hmm. you know like you know if you're playing like over like a minor seven chord and you use a bunch of this stuff or a dominant seven chord it sounds a lot like patatucci like back in the early days you know okay. like it's playing you know uh, a lot of that sort of brecker stuff you know and uh and then, but Gary sort of said to me, he goes, yeah, you know, when you do the lesson, I want you to put it over a two, five, one. So play the two, five, one on the piano and then play those lines over it. And I said, you know, some of this stuff's kind of ugly, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, it's kind of ugly. You know I mean? I, I get it and I, I kind of dig it, you know, but there's, and, and, and then Gary said, yeah, he goes, there was this piano student of Charlie's that said, Charlie, man, like, the stuff you're teaching me is going to get me fired from gigs. He goes like, man, you got me playing all this out stuff. And like, how can I go on a gig and play this? And Charlie looked at him and he said, Hey man, when was the last time you heard me do a gig? <laughs> Cause you know, Charlie just taught, you know, yeah, yeah. It's just educated. Wow. But there's, there's some interesting stories about him. I mean, somebody told me, that Miles called him, uh, and this was around the time Stern was, when Stern had joined the band. And um, because there's a great story that Charlie actually told me, when Stern joined Miles's band, 
And you know, you're talking about those ear training things a minute ago where the clusters and thing, you know, where uh, Stern like studied with Charlie to the point where he could hear an 11 note cluster. Damn. You know, because Charlie had this system where you go one note, he had two notes, three notes, but it wasn't like, you know, yeah, two notes is just intervals and then three notes is now triads. No, it was like every permutation, every combination, and he would just drill this to people, you know, to, to the nth degree. Wayne Prance told me that he had gone through it up to four notes, and he said it nearly like killed him. <laughs> but Stern, Stern did the whole. He was brutal. He was brutal. Yeah. He would do the eight fingers, bang. All right, now I'm going to teach you how to identify these. You know. Yeah, yeah, and so and so so Stern could do that shit. Wow. And so so uh, he he's rehearsing with Miles, with you know the We Want Miles band, you know yeah. Marcus and stuff, and they used to rehearse at Miles's Brownstone. And then at the end of the rehearsal, Miles would cook for the band and then they'd hang out, you know, and Marcus was at the piano and he was playing some voicings and stuff. And he said, hey, Mike, he goes, I heard you studied with Banakis and you can do all this ear training stuff. Uh, can you hear this? And so Stern just names like every note down, you know, and he goes, yeah, well, how about this? And they get into this little battle, you know, and Stern's just killing it, you know, through the thing. Miles is just flipping burgers and stuff. And, you know, you know, he's just not taking any of this in. So the next day when they go come in for the rehearsal, uh, Miles walks in with a folder with charts, you know, and he starts handing out the charts to Bill Evans and Marcus and Al Foster. And he just walks right past Mike, you know. Mike says, hey, Miles, like, you know, give, give me the chart. He said, hey, listen, man, if you can really do that shit you did yesterday, you ain't never getting another chart from me. And, and Banaka said, you know, that serves him right for being a wise guy in front of Miles Davis. You know what I mean? It's like. <laughs> Be careful with the skills you have. Yeah, it's a great story. It's a great story. But I mean, that's like, you know, Stern, man, has got yeah. some skills, you know. Stern has got some insane skills. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he was like just, he was a total Banakis disciple, man. Yeah. Wow. Total. All those like long Stern lines, you know. Yeah. Banakis had a, had a, a whole system where he, um, he gave you these long lines, you know, and he, and he wrote them, you know, like, and, and there was just tons of them, man. There was so many of these lines that you had to learn. And he had it like where, you know, he would do the rhythm and it was just like way beyond 64th notes, you know, it was just like loads of like, you know, beams on the top of the thing, you know, to where it was like, yeah, I mean, you got to play this fast, wow. you know? So he had, his mantra was like top speed in all keys, you know? Wow. And, uh, and in a way, you know, I, I, it's, you know, I even say to, to all my guys, because a lot of guys go, when you say that, like, look, you got to build your chops, you know, you have to have some facility on your base. And a lot of guys go, whoa, you know, I don't want to be like a Hadrian Farod or anything. Uh, I just want to play grooves. Okay, well, let's check out some James Jameson stuff then. <laughs> and let's listen to some of those grooves. Yeah. You know, where he's like killing those 16th notes yeah. at like 115, you know what I mean? And it's just like nailing it and it's busy, you know, a lot of those lines are busy, you know. Um, 
a lot of that doesn't come across on those records as that because of the way it was recorded and also the you know we had the key bass with the flat wounds and you know so there wasn't much definition but if you really listen to what he was doing it was just like insane and uh, of course he was a trained jazz player and so i always tell people like you know this isn't about playing like hadrian you know and 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 by the way if that's your goal like make sure you block out in your diary like the next 15 years about 12 hours a day you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's like you know let's get that straight because i mean that's like one of the best well mm -hmm. at least pound for pound one of the most technically proficient guys in the world you know what i mean you're not going to yeah. get there overnight um but just playing grooves and knowing what you're doing you see the history of that of people saying that is kind of a, you know, like, hey, man, I'm just a feel guy. Like, I feel it from here. Like, I don't actually, subtitles, I don't know anything about music. I just play from the heart. But it's like, dude, you know, that's not the way the greats are. The greats are not mm -hmm. like Amazon. He wasn't like that. Yeah. You know, he wasn't a feel guy. You know, I know there's a lot of guys that, that can, that say that, but like a guy who says that kind of, he doesn't really say it in this way, but a lot of people interpret what he says because he's such a laid back guy as Pino Palladino. You know, a lot of guys think, oh, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's like, you know, he can't read music. He can't do this. Well, you know, somewhere along the line, like somebody interviewed Pino and said, Hey, you know, uh, can you read music? And he said, yeah, I don't, I'm not really that good at reading music. Because in Pino's mind, a good reader is Anthony Jackson. A good reader is Neil Steubenhaus. You know what I mean? Like, those are the standards that he's like attributing yeah. a comment like that. You know, it's like, but you know, I had a student called Andy Creamer who played a while with uh, Narada Michael Walden and he did a he did a sub for Pino. It was for I can't remember who the artist was, um, but it was he basically just subbed for the for some of the rehearsals because Pino couldn't be in some of the rehearsals, but the band needed to rehearse, so they got my student in. And and this guy told me he said there was a whole pad. It was all written. He said everything was written, and that's what I played from when I went in. So, you know, and I know Pino can, you know, he might not be the guy who can go in and do like, you know, like the uh, six jingles in an afternoon and just like bang out like live TV stuff and, you know, be the guy who's going to be the bass player at the Emmy Awards. You know what I mean? He's not that guy. Carlito but, Puerto is the, the guy doing that stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he knows. He, yeah. yeah, you know, and that's a different kind of skill set. You know, Steubenhaus, you know, Jimmy Johnson, yeah. all those guys, you know, just killer in that area. You know, those guys are the real deal. But um, uh, Nathan, Nathan East, you know, I asked him once. He came over to do a, a seminar for the Bay Center over here. And, you know, I've been involved with the Bass Center off and on for years. And so we all went out to dinner afterwards, you know. And I, I said to Nathan, like, you know, in L.A., and especially in L.A. back then, like in the 80s and the 90s, uh, in the 70s as well, 
the skill for a working guy in LA, you know, everyone was like insanely good. Mm -hmm. You didn't have people that weren't good working in LA. I mean, you just didn't have that, you know, and everyone could read, everyone could play, everyone had the right gear, everyone had a great attitude, you know, and I said to Nathan, like, look, you know, I've lived in LA and, you know, most of the guys that I knew in the circles that I was around could read and everything. What separates guys like that from guys like you and Jimmy Johnson and Abe Laborio, you know, these kind of guys. And he said, he said, it's simple. He goes, we're the guys who can read, but simultaneously reinterpret Mm -hmm. what's going on. Mm -hmm. So that's another level, right? That's a whole nother level of it. You know, where you're reinterpreting on the fly what's going on, almost like second guessing. And sometimes those things are talked about, mm-hmm. sometimes they aren't, but you got to have that particular skill, you know, to do that. And I thought that was kind of an interesting comment from Nathan, you know, and uh, he's great with all the, I don't know if you know him and have hung with him, but he's like, he's like a magician, like a proper, like, magic circle guy like you know he was like indoctrinated into the magic circle at some point and he used to use that to get work and everyone loved him because it's like don't you just love watching magic tricks you know what i mean when you see a magician it's just like wow man how did you do that so we're sitting there and i said to him hey man i heard that you know you do magic and stuff and he goes yeah yeah i do and uh he said, uh, he, I said, well, can you do a little something for us? You know, and he said, sure. He goes, you got any change in your pocket? And I said, yeah. So I had a couple of coins, you know, three or four coins. And I gave him the coins and he took a wine glass and it was like a stem wine glass, right? And he turns it over upside down on the table and he holds the stem and the bottom of the glass is here. And that's, this is on the tail. I'm this close, man. Here, he takes the change and he goes, one, two, three. And it's in the glass. Like, no shit. And I'm like, no way, man. You got to do that again. You got to do that again. Like, right now, you got to do that again. He said, okay. So he does it again. One, two, three, and it's in the glass, you know. We're blown away, man. And we're like right on top of him as well, you know. And I said... I said, listen, man, just do it for me one more time. And he said, no, man. He goes, you do it to you three times, it becomes a lesson. He goes, once, twice, that's still the trick. You start seeing from the third time, you start staying start- true to the art by doing that. Like, <laughs> staying true to the art. <laughs> but yeah, you know, so it's like, but he, he was totally equipped. He had stuff he was pulling out of his sleeve and everything, you know. It was, it was insane. It's insane, but uh, but yeah, what you know, you can sort of think like George Harrison thinking, yeah, you know, on that last record project we had, who did we have in on bass? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But who was the guy who did all the magic tricks? Let's get him in again. <laughs> I always say there should be one thing that makes you identifiable. You know, yeah. one thing like what 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 is it that is your thing? And some people don't like the term branding, like, you know, I mean, I heard Rogan say, someone said to Rogan one time, they said, oh, I love your brand. And he's like, ooh, that's gross. I don't want to know about that. But in effect, whether you like it or not, you have a degree of branding to you, your, to your persona. So 
Oh. Make it stick out so you get known for that, really. You know, whatever it might be, you know, run with it. Run with it. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, these days as well, because it's all about marketing now. You know, I mean, you have to be able to market yourself. Um, you know, to me, it's uh, it's part of the whole package now, you know, with my mm -hmm. online courses that I teach. This is uh, very important. And also, what a lot of guys don't realize about me, I'm a one-man band. Like, I, I do everything. Like, I, I have a tech guy that does a few things that I know I can't do. And he's always there to the rescue for me, you know, when I get stuck. But I do a lot of the stuff from my own websites and, uh, you know, the designs and uh, all my marketing, you know, is done by me. I, I never outsource to anyone to do that. It's all, you know, the way to do just, it, man. Just trial and error and finding your niche and finding your, your, your thing. And I, I did study, you know, I studied marketing for a while with a guy called Dan Kennedy. He was an old school copywriter. And he, he was the guy who got the gig copywriting the infomercial for Anthony Robbins, the oh, unlimited gosh. power thing, Jeez. you know? So he wow. did that and he, he made 150 grand for the copywriting for the, for, you know, writing the copy for that infomercial. And I remember him telling me, he said, listen, listen, Joe, he goes, what you want to do is look at your niche look at everyone who's your competition and then do completely the opposite. And, and that's what I, I kind of have always done anyway, because my stuff is based on quality. It's not based on tricks. Mm -hmm. It's not based on like, you know, hacks, tricks, any of this kind of stuff. It's based on real stuff. If you want to become a good bass player, I'm going to give you the tools that is going to enable you to do that through your own practice because you have to do it yourself. Of course, we all know that, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, but that's where I'm at with it. You know, I don't care. Like I've had guys like write me emails and saying, hey, you know, I saw, you know, I'm looking at other guys uh, videos and stuff. And I think you should just kind of succumb and start giving people what they want. And I always write back to these guys and say, how come you think that I'm not successful doing what I'm doing? Right. You're insinuating that I'm not successful doing this. You see it. Oh, yeah. what, you don't have clickbait titles like why five, ba five string bases suck? Well, <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Because, you know, to me, if you have a title that Sorry, if you have that. a title that entices someone to click, that's fine if it isn't hyperbole, you know what I mean? If it's actually real, you know, like I'll give you an example because, you know, the internet, man, like when you put any stuff out there, you are fair game for anyone to come after, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, when I did my Jameson, like I did my first Jameson video mm -hmm. and of course, you know, I mean, I'm usually a one bass guy and at the time I was playing Roscoe basses and I had one of their you know, high-end boutique bases, and I'm doing a Jameson video, and it was kind of in the style of Jameson. And, you know, I put some foam in to get the dead sound, but, you know, people, actually, there was a guy, one of the commenters on that video threatened to murder me. <laughs> <laughs> 
controls, man. Yeah, yeah. So you get this thing, you know. So, and it's like, and the funny thing is, is that that's the biggest watch video that I have. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, and, and it's two camps, like, going at each other on those comments. And I eventually, like, just left them all up there. Yeah. And just kind of stopped getting bothered, like, by it. In the beginning, it was like, man, you know, try to reason with some of these guys. But no. this is the thing. But I put out a, I put out a, a video. Uh, uh, I've done a couple of story videos. Mm -hmm. uh, I did one on Jocko, and I did one on Pino, because Pino was my very first student that I ever taught. So when I moved to the UK in 1981, Pino was the first guy who called me. You know, I was, I was working, when I first got here, the first gig I got was with Michael Giles, who was the first drummer in King Crimson. Wow. And, you know, he had like this kind of progressive thing that he was putting together. And, and, and it taught me a, a lesson about how some of these like rich rock star guys hmm. have these projects that they want to do and then never end up doing anything. Because <laughs> we had this band and it was great and we were rehearsing, but it never did anything. And it was like all the talk about how it was going to go great and all this stuff. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, through that period, and I was starting to pick up some gigs, I put out an ad in Melody Maker magazine and I said, you know, people, I, I told them I went to Berkeley and that, you know, I was living in the London area, you know, if you want lessons. So first guy that rings is Pino, you know, mm -hmm. and comes over and, and does his first lesson. And so the, the lesson that uh, uh, the, uh, the video that I did, one of the videos on him that I did, the title was something I taught Pino Palladino, hmm. you know? And I showed an exercise that I taught Pino and it was the concept, you know, it was a chord scale thing. And I showed how, you know, to play through these, you know, linking, it was kind of an interconnecting scale exercise type thing. And I showed it and a bunch of guys came up like, hey, yeah, that's like, yeah, good try. That was a bit of clickbait. Yeah, whatever. Great lesson though, you know? And it's like, I had to answer that. It was like, no, this isn't clickbait. I did teach Pino Palladino. Yeah, but you could have just written something I taught my neighbor. And it, yeah, Pino wasn't my neighbor. You know what I mean? But this is the way people get with that. So, right. you know, maybe it was clickbaity to get people to click because Pino's name is very clickable. Uh, but I actually taught him, you know, so that's, awesome. that's the... Yeah. I mean, it's it's a for real deal, and like all the the three of us, we've all gotten something online. We've all dealt with some sort of bullshit. You'll do, believe me. Oh, I, yeah. I think the best one for me is usually when someone's like, "I suppose you're correct," and I want to be like, "No, this is this is what I'm, you know, what I'm knowledgeable on. I don't suppose I am." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, people are really comfortable in with anonymity and say whatever the fuck they want to without any repercussions or anything they can just hide behind and then you look yeah. at the basically most of those people that comment you look on their on their page and there's nothing there all they're there it's like a you know it's a blank account so they can just and none of us are anonymous we're all you know have our 
respective reputation. So yeah, yeah, I mean, we're brave enough to put our real names as our handles on TalkBase. <laughs> I, mean, I there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't get at least one message on TalkBase about something. And some of these people I know, and some of them I'm like, oh, this person just joined a month ago, and they have not a picture, no information, no nothing. So I have to handle it very, very openly and carefully, and choose my words correctly, you know? Mm -hmm. Or just ignore so, it. Just ignore it, man. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. You know, it's like, I always say, like, none of those guys, like, if you were at NAM or something, Dude. would come up to you and say anything. No. You know, they, they wouldn't say anything. They wouldn't dare. They wouldn't dare put their own self on the line to come out with anything that was, like, you know, assy or something, you know, to your face. Or even, so, or even just put something out on the internet, like, well, I got some video, like, put something out, like. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, well, that's what I say. Like, if, if I see, if a guy, like, I have, I've had any, every time I've done, like, the last Jameson thing I did, I actually did it on my, uh, on my P-Base. I've got, a, like, a P-Base copy by a company called Base Collection. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a P-Base, and I've got flat wounds on it, and I, I did a, a, a thing, uh, playing the outro of what's happening brother by uh, Marvin Gaye and talking about how, you know, Jameson used to love to use the six instead of the seven on major seven chords. So that would be like his go-to extension yeah. uh, over the major seven. And, and, you know, I finally thought like, you know, cause the first Jameson one, I had the Roscoe, you know, the second Jameson one, I think I did it on my, on my bass collection jazz bass. Hmm. And then the third one, I actually did it on a P bass with flat wounds and really got the sound and the backing yeah. track was pretty authentic. I put some time into that. And like, no one really, like that's had the less views. Cause it's like, they can't really moan about something. Like, a, you know, like on the, on the second one, it's like Jamison didn't play a jazz bass, man. You know, be like that, you know, that sort of stuff. You know? But you so, watched it, jackass. Right. But I, you, I've had a lot of guys who, who have kind of said, like, you know, you're like I did a thing where I was talking about, you know, how Jamison, his use of chromaticism. And I had one guy on Facebook that was arguing with me and said, no, you're wrong. Jamison's whole vibe was his rhythm. And it had nothing to do with the chromaticism that you're talking about. Well, I could pick any of those tunes in the Stay in the Shadows of Motown. Like all the hip ones, you know, like right. what's going on or, uh, you know, uh, I heard it through the grapevine or Darling Deer or Burnett. Any other Burnett, you know, it, yeah, any, any of those things. And you see straight away for once in my life, you know, yeah. you go chord tone, chord tone. There's a double chromatic approach from below diatonic from above back into a chord tone scale passing tones chord tone chord tone chord tone chord yeah this is what he uses you know through this and so the guy said flat out i was wrong you know and he said look we should have a a, a playoff video you playing jameson and me playing jameson and i said no man i'm not going to do that my stuff's well documented all over the internet several Jamison things, a bunch of R&B stuff, bunch of funk things, bunch of jazz things. I said, what we need to hear is you playing. 
So feel free to submit anything that you got. And the guy just turned totally violent on me, you know, and he ended up getting right. banned off of this forum called the bass guitar there. But, you know, the thing about it is that, you know, it's like, dude, you know, yeah, if you got something to say, show me. Because yeah. there's, there's some great new guys on the Internet that, you know, are, are new guys, you know, who are playing amazing, you know. So, yeah. yeah, and those guys, they put their videos out, you know, for everyone to see. So it's like, yeah, that's what they should do. You take it with a grain of salt the size of a Kardashian booty, you know what I mean? You know, I think like, well, you know, if it's what you feel and, you know, it's all about soul, you know, like just if that's what's in your soul, you put it out there. It's like, that's what it is, man. Anybody else has anything to do. Go ahead, put it out there. But it's a hard thing to even do that. And a lot of people don't understand that and they think it's easy and it's oh yeah, not yeah. easy, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they do. And I, th I think with this with the whole lockdown thing and this, this whole current state of affairs, yeah. what did like a lot of guys want to do? A lot of guys suddenly want to put out online things because there's no, there's no work. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so a lot of guys think, Oh man, that's easy. I can do that. Put a YouTube channel together. No dude, this is not nope. easy. It's hard. I always, always, yeah. I always say, um, I love doing all this stuff, but editing is a pain in the ass. Oh yeah, you're I right. I fucking hate it, but I love it. But it's a yeah. labor of love. It's got to be soul. Like, yeah. it's oh man, it, it's a pain in the ass getting all that yeah. shit together, lining shit up, doing the. It's but you know you yeah. just have to keep doing it and doing it. And guys think it's easy, and it's like, yeah, yeah, you're doing a great job, by the way, as well. Oh. You know, like you know the whole thing about you know so many guys doing those gear things, you know, and it's good to see you know, uh, some good stuff with that, you know, and balanced and, uh, you know, not just like, uh, where, uh, you know, it's, it's a very one-sided kind of bias sort of reviews, you know, towards it. So yeah, I'm, I'm digging what you're doing. Dude. Thanks, man. It's just being true to ourselves. Like all of us, we always talk, it's like, man, this is, this is what we're doing and just put it out there. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. Joe, how this started? The three of us, I tell the story, so I'm sorry to the audience that hears this. Uh, you know what I mean? So I, I think it's on the Big Bottom bingo card at this point. It's it like Tony brings well up be. the story. That's terrible, John. <laughs> but we were chatting on a via text message for a couple of years. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's so bad, dude. And then, like, we were like, all this industry stuff, and we're like, we need to put this out to everybody and then COVID hit and we're like, Hey guys, uh, fucking let's, do this. It. let's fucking yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's good. Cause you know, it's, it, this is, you know, people dig this kind of stuff, you know, where people can hang out and, you know, just candidly kind of observe and, and listen to stories. I think that as well, like stories, like when I grew up playing, you know, um, when I moved to Hawaii, Mm -hmm. uh, that's where my career kind of took off wow. uh, before I moved to the UK. And, you know, Hawaii had an incredible music scene. Mm. And uh, I don't know if you ever heard of that band called Sea Wind. They, yeah. were like, they were like an L.A. band, but they hey, were from Hawaii. Laboreal played with them for a minute, right? Was... No, no. Kenny Wilde played bass okay. with them. Okay. All right. Sorry. Yeah. A guy called Kenny Wilde played bass. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, they were they were from Hawaii, and uh, Harvey Mason went over there and discovered them and signed them to CTI Records and brought them to L.A. And then the, the Seawind Horns played on all that Quincy stuff, all the Michael Jackson stuff. Oh, no shit. You know, Jerry Hay, Larry Williams, Bill Rettenbach, you know, wow. uh, those guys, you know, Kim Hutchcroft. They, they played on all of that stuff. Wow. Like, they were the top horn section guys in for probably over well over 10 years you know in LA and then the rhythm like Ken Wilde used to do a bunch of stuff and Bob Wilson the drummer was great and um, so I, I I moved over there uh, after I left Berkeley that was in 77 and um, my brother lived there and I just kind of moved over there on a whim you know like you know I don't know I'm gonna try to do something I was just getting ready to like put my application into Pizza Hut. And uh, this guy came up to me and he said, hey man, I got this, there's an ad for a bass player playing in a Honolulu show band. You know, cause there's a big like tourist music scene there, right? You know, in Honolulu. Uh, and it says, you gotta be able to read music. So I thought, yeah, man, I'll ring this up. So I rang the guy and it turns out the MD was a Berkeley grad and he said, he goes, well, listen, you know, can you read, you know? And I said, yeah, man, I can read music. And uh, so he said, come down and audition. And I got this gig and it was like, you know, suddenly I'm working like six nights a week wow. and, you know, I'm making, I don't know, this is like 77. I'm making about 270 bucks a week, which at the time was like, you know, a lot more than I'd make it pizza, hot, you know? <laughs> and, and I had a, I got a little flat right in Honolulu and then, you know, what I do is every night after the show, I'd go into Honolulu to all the night spots where they had live music because there was so many live music places and I would sit in. And that's how like I kind of eventually got after about six months, I got a gig with a, an artist in Hawaii called Noalani Cipriano, who was a great singer and kind of funk R&B commercial, you know, and she had a record deal. And uh, I went to sit in with this band called Music Magic. And uh, on the same night that I was there, what the, one of the bass players in Honolulu who was really hot and established at the time was this guy, Ben Ritfield, who's played with Santana for like the last 30 years, you know? You know, you know Ben, have you heard of him, Ben Ritfield? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so- Just so, Santana, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he, Ben was also the last bass player that Miles had before Miles passed away. Wow. He played with that that Miles Electric band when wow. Foley played like the lead bass. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? I remember that. Oh, yeah. And uh, because Ben, he moved from Honolulu. I think after I left Honolulu, he moved and went to San Francisco and played with Sheila E. And then he got that gig with Miles. And then after that, he was with Santana. But he saw me play at this club and he introduced himself to me and he said, Hey, listen, man, I'm doing this gig with this, this singer, Noah Lani, And, but I can't do this gig anymore. I think you'd be perfect for this. So he said, you gotta have to audition, but you know, I'll, I'll hook you up. And he did. And I was suddenly playing like, you know, on a real gig and we were doing tours and we had residencies and, and it was pretty exciting, you know, and, uh, and that kind of went on for a while. And then uh, I eventually, there was a guy 
who uh, was from San Francisco. He was a Filipino American guy called Flip Nunez. Hmm. And he used to play with a band called Azteca. I don't know if you remember those guys. Hmm. And Azteca, Azteca were kind of an offshoot from Santana. You know, they kind of had like, you know, Neil Schoen played guitar and they had people that were involved with Santana. And they were kind of like a, a Santana-y Latin mm -hmm. kind of jazz, but not really. And Flip played keyboards with them. And I was really into Santana for a long time. And so I went to a union meeting to like join the union in Honolulu because I was doing these show gigs, you know, and Flip is at this union meeting they said you know we're really pleased to announce and there's like four guys in this union meeting pleased to announce that we have a new guy from san francisco flip nunez who's just joined the local union here and he's a real pro so you might want to get to know him and i thought man i know this guy so i went straight up to him and i said hey you know i i want to play with you and he said well you know i'm doing this uh, bebop gig in Honolulu, and it was a place called Kaoni's, which was like the real deal bebop place. Yeah. Like the place like you couldn't play and they, they'd actually boot your ass out the door. You know, that kind of place, you know? And so, <clears throat> and so I said, he said, yeah, come down, man, and sit in. So I went down and sat in and I just completely stepped all over my dick, you know what I mean? And like, I mean, like I couldn't, I couldn't really, I couldn't really play jazz at that time. You know, I could play kind of fusion funk, uh -huh. <laughs> like Billy Cobham kind of stuff, you know, and I could kind of, I could play a lot of different things, but I couldn't play jazz, you know, I was completely exposed. So, but he was cool. He kind of saw me as being a hungry guy, you know? And so he said, you know, yeah, you know, you need a lot of work, uh, but, you know, hey, come down and hang out anytime, you know, type of thing. So I used to go down there a lot. And so the years went by and I was like in Honolulu for like three and a half years. So my last year there, I'm working, uh, at, I'm doing a residency with a fusion band called Insight. It's this great trumpet player called Eddie Ramirez. And we used to do Brecker Brother. We were like a Brecker Brothers tribute band, man. We used to do all Brecker Brothers right, stuff. So I got to stop you right there. When you have a fusion band doing a residency, that says yeah. a shit ton, okay? Yeah, yeah, this was- Different this time was, period. This was the way Hawaii was. It was very, very music centric. Wow. And so we did, we had, a, and this was in a Holiday Inn lounge. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not shitting. <laughs> and, and we were doing this, we were playing like Steven Tunes, Brecker Brothers stuff, you know, all sort, all the cool stuff, you know? And, uh, uh, I was at the at a rehearsal with this band and we, you know, we're doing the residency and we're rehearsing during the afternoon and I get a call at the bar and it's Flip and he goes like, hey, I'm trying to track you down, man. And I said, what? He goes, listen, I need a bass player for this gig and you need to start tonight or the or the offer is off the table. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Uh, do, do I have the gig? He goes, yeah, you, you'll have the gig as long as you can handle it. As long as you can actually handle it, you can have the gig. I'll give you the chance, but you got to start tonight. I know this is terrible, man. Hung that phone up. All the guys in the band, I said, guys, I'm sorry, I'm out of here. <laughs> and I just walked out. I just said, I'm out of here. And I started that night. 
And that was the beginning of trial by fire for one year, man. This guy raped me through the coals, wow. forwards and backwards. It was so hardcore. I can't tell you how hardcore it was. So just to give you an example, like, <laughs> like every night he would roast me. Oh. And I, I, the first night, so I go in on the first night and I was like so excited, man. I'm, I've got the gig, you know, and not even thinking like, man, you got to come, you got to play this stuff. But my playing had got a lot better, you know, and he knew I was hungry. So I was on that cusp of still not being of age, but he thought this could either make you or break you if you can handle it. So I said, okay, great. What's the set list? What's the set list for the first uh, set? He goes, we don't have a set list. Man. <laughs> you know? And I said, well, you know, could you give me a list of tunes maybe so I can understand what we're going to play like from set to set? And he goes, you know, that would be impossible because I know over 3,000 tunes. And he just walked off. So I'm like, shit, man, this is serious. So I used to sit there like, you know, like there with my bass and I had a real book. That's all I had. And, you know, the original real book, loads of those standards are in the wrong key. Like, you know, like Autumn Leaves was like in G major, right? Mm -hmm. And then everyone played in B flat, you know? So I even remember the time when, they, call, they didn't even call it. I just knew it was autumn leaves. And I quickly go to the chart and, 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 and I'm, I'm starting to walk over it and I'm walking, I'm playing it in G and they're playing it in B flat. And I'm thinking, my God, something is seriously wrong. <laughs> and I was like, like the guy, the kind of deer in the headlights, like, yeah, but it says on this chart, Mm. And a lot of the changes are wrong in the real book, man. That first oh, yeah. book was just... Oh, like, yeah, yeah. They're, they're like, oh, yeah. And then intros and stuff that, you know, they start playing an intro, you know, to a tune. And you go like, where did that come from? Like, you know, and they, they would just start playing. And, and the drummer used to, after a while, the drummer, because the drummer was a great pianist. So he, he would sort of say, like, yeah, this is the tune. Like, the tune we just played is Stella by Starlight write it down yeah and learn it in every key so yeah. when you come back you you'll understand what's going on so i was i had been doing that gig about three months this is this is six nights a week four sets a night wow i got a flat really near the club i used to practice like six or seven hours a day then i would go and do the gig come home repeat that i did that for a whole year man my playing just went through the roof man yeah. in that time you know it was but i felt every day that i was that i sucked and that i was worthless mm -hmm. because these guys just showed me man you can't play you can't hang you know and until you can hang you can't hang you know so you just got it you know but they kept me there like they i kept thinking this is my last night man they're not gonna let me get away with this but i lasted the whole year and um, I remember I was there for three months and I walk in and uh, flipped. Uh, he used to sing as well. You know, he was a really good singer, like a Sinatra kind of singer, but not a crooner. Like the, when Sinatra sang swing, okay. you know, like okay. one in love and that sort of stuff, you know, that era, you know. And um, and uh, he said, hey, let's do uh, Days of Wine and Roses, like a Groove Holmes kind of thing, you know, medium swing. 
And so I had known that tune by then. So I said, okay, yeah, let's do that. And so we play it. And it's the first set, hardly anyone's in the audience, you know, and we play it and it's, everything's just feeling right. You know, it was one of those things I, and it was one of the first experiences on that gig that I thought, wow, it's feeling good. And I kind of feel good about this of what's going on. And I played a solo over it, a couple of choruses. And uh, at the end of the tune, Flip turns around and he, although he was a Filipino American, he had this look about like he kind of looked like Jack Nicholson. Mm. He had that Nicholson smile. So he turns around, and he looks at me, and he said, "Yeah, baby, you got the groove, man. You got the groove." And I thought, "Listen, like I, th I just thought in my mind, I didn't say anything, but I thought, man, you can't do that to me, man. You've been roasting me." <laughs> Every night, you, I can't handle this. I can't handle you flipping on me. You know what I mean? Oh, so, so, of course, he knew this. So he knew what, this. This was all part of the lesson. So he, the next thing that he calls, you know, he was like, yeah, great, man. Swing. And, you know, he goes, okay, let's do Oleo. He starts. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I knew how to play rhythm changes, yeah, but, but the tempo, man. The tempo was so up there, and I lasted because he played organ. He played a farfisa organ. Whoa. And if I if I ever couldn't make it, he would he would just go like, "Lay out, man, lay out," and he'd then just play the walking bass on his organ. So I lasted about three or four choruses, and he was just like giving me the like, you know, you, you know, get off of this, you know, get out of the way, you know what I mean? <laughs> Leave follower, get out of the way, man, you know, and it was like really intense. So the so I'm sitting there, you know, after he had told me that I was great on the first tune and on the second tune, you know, it's burning tempo where I couldn't make more than four choruses. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, he turns around and looks at me with that same smile. And he said, once you think you've got it, you don't. <laughs> I don't know if gigs like that exist anymore. They don't. No, I don't think that, that was part of an era, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was part of an era, and I was so grateful to him. And I was lucky because, uh, you know, what I went – see, at the end, at the end, the reason the gig ended was because he got sick, and he couldn't live in a tropical environment anymore. Oh, Something to do with his respiratory system. And it was the tropics that was, like, really hammering him. So he moved back to San Francisco. And, you know, I remember on the last night of the, the gig, the gig was over then, you know, like the, he was leaving. It was like the other guys were trying to hustle the gig. And so, and I had already taken a gig with a trumpet player called Joe Burnett in another venue. And um, so Flip said, like, you know, listen, what are you doing now? Like, what are your plans? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm joining Joe Burnett's band. And I'm just going to stay here. And, you know, yeah. and he said, no, you're not. No, no, no. People retire in Hawaii, man. He goes, you got to go to New York. That's where you got to go. And so it was like, yeah, I got to go to New York. So that's when I went back to Berkeley, you know, to do that. And while I was at Berkeley, you know, when I went the second time at Berkeley, the first day I walked into the Berkeley base department, I was so excited to be back at Berkeley, man. I walked in the Berkeley base department and I thought, I want to see if anyone's there. No one was there, but on the cork board was just a piece of music paper folded in half that just said, Jeff Berlin, 
bass lessons and had a phone number. And that was it. And I thought, no way, Jeff Berlin is in Boston? You know, is he teaching at Berkeley or what? You know, well, it turns out that Jeff was, you know, he was living in New York. He was touring with Bill Bruford and his, his spot with Charlie Banacas came up. And so he, he chucked everything in to move back to Boston to study with Charlie. You know, and that's kind of like the, 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 the cool thing about him is his commitment to music. Like, you know, it was like, again, like the career, like he, and he was, I mean, you know, when he lived in New York, he was working a lot of jingles, man, because Jeff's reading skills are off the chart. You know, they really are like, he's one guy, he can read anything. Like, you know, you put anything in front of him, he can read it. You know, it's just insane. But he moved back to Boston. So he was gigging with guys like Stern. He was gigging with everyone. You know, like I saw one gig with him uh, that had Tiger Akoshi on trumpet, Mike Stern on guitar, Mike Clark on drums, and Jeff on bass. You know, but I saw that like every week you would see some incantation of a, of a group of guys like that, some deviation, you know, where it was just the, just great guys, you know, suddenly Steve Smith would be there playing and Jeff would be that, you know, and it was just, you know, Mick Goodrick, all the good, all the heavies, you know, and yeah. Jeff was working every single night. And I had some lessons. I had to beg, borrow and steal and starve because even back then he charged a shitload of money for lessons. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember my first lesson with Jeff, this is classic. Yeah. this is classic like i knock on his door like he had an apartment on the fenway you know so i go and i knock on the door and he's like he's unbolting the the locks and it's like a comedy sketch because there's like you know 20 bolts on this thing you know finally gets the door open and he just it opens it up and it's on the chain he goes yeah and i said yeah i'm joe you know i'm here for my lesson he goes okay wait here slams the door <laughs> just leaves me out in the hall you know for a while so then the other guy leaves so other guy walks out i come in jeff said okay you know like uh can, are you playing jazz you know ask me a few questions and what do you want to do and stuff and i said yeah yeah i'm playing jazz and he said okay well if i asked you to play uh, uh a couple of choruses of all the things you are but only use chord tones in your in your solo. Do you think you could do that? And I said, yeah, maybe. I'll give it a shot, you know? I mean, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'm not sure. I never really tried that before. And so Jeff goes, okay, you know, so I get, you know, I plug the bass in and stuff, and Jeff pulls his chair right up to me, and he goes like this, and he goes, he's looking like right at my bass, you know, he goes, okay, man, go. <laughs> I'm going like, yeah, like no pressure here at all. Cause he was like kind of an idol to me yeah. at the time. I was probably more into his playing than Jocko. And I loved all that stuff from Bruford. And I tried to figure out a lot of this stuff at the time. And, uh, and so, you know, to have that, but you know, I gave it a shot, you know, and kind of, it wasn't, it wasn't great, but at the end of it, you know, he, he said, uh, he looks at me and he goes, yeah, he goes, nice try man he goes let me see your bass and he takes my bass and he proceeded to play about 12 choruses over all things you are and i couldn't have told you at the time whether he was using all chord tones it just sounded great yeah 
it is just flowing. It's just flowing through the changes, you know, and I thought, yeah, that's it, you know. And, uh, and so I ended up having like two or three lessons with him over, a, over kind of a period of time. And I remember on the last lesson I had with him, he said like, hey, listen, man, like, what are your plans in life? Like, where are you, what are you doing? Like, you know, I know you're going to Berkeley, but, you know, what are, you, what are your aspirations, you know? And I said, well, I'm going to New York. That's where I want to go because that's where Flip told me to go. And he said, he goes, no, man, you don't want to go to New York. I've been there. New York is dead. You need to go to L.A. Wow. And that's what I did. I just I quit Berkeley and went to L.A. <laughs> <laughs> because of Jeff Berlin. Yeah, because of Jeff. You know, he kind of, you know. When I when I told him that story, you know, he kind of thought like, "Oh man, you know, like I shouldn't." Have said that. But it's like, no, you did. In a way, you were right, you know, because the thing is, you know, what he what he was kind of saying is like, you know, you you've kind of I think done what you need to do at Berkeley, like go and play, just what the original Berkeley te teachers told me that go out and gig and get some experience, you know. But kudos for Jeff. Yeah. To actually say, go do a human thing, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah he's that's like right. all about the education yeah. and straight up jazz. So, yeah, I mean, his, the thing with the education with him, I think, kind of came as a sideline because he was always a player, you know? I mean, I, he had then moved to go to LA to join the faculty at MI, mm. you know? But you know he and I, you know he was teaching there. But you know he was also playing a lot, man. Yeah. Like when he was in L.A., he did a lot of playing. And of course, you know he had record deals, and you know he's doing a bunch of stuff. So I would, I would, I don't really know because I didn't go to MI or have any uh, involvement with him there. But he probably wasn't that involved in the education side of things. Not anywhere near as much as he is now, you know, but um, so, and it was weird because I met him again when I moved to LA in 1986, I went to do some work over there and, uh, and uh, I had gone to a gig and it, he, he was doing the gig at the baked potato with somebody. It might've even been his own band. I can't remember. And at the break, he was sitting outside and I went outside and I said, hey, Jeff, you know, I'm Joe Hubbard. I don't know if you remember me. And I was, you know, he didn't remember me at all from teaching me. But he said, oh, yeah, I know you. You're the guy who's teaching everyone in London, you know. And I said, OK, yeah, you know, and I said, yeah, I had some lessons from you and stuff. And then so it turns out that about a two or three weeks after that, I get a gig teaching at the Bass Center in Studio City, which was right near the Baked Potato. I used to go there all the time. You remember? You remember? Of course I do. I remember the, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. Remember, remember that guy, Alan Morgan, that rang that, ran that place? Yeah, that was, was Mecca that? for us back in the day because you couldn't find, that was the only place in, yeah. in LA or that you could find a Warwick, a Tobias or whatever. And we were, yeah. anyway, sorry. That was the pilgrimage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I got a gig, Alan Morgan, you know, because, you know, I knew him from England and I was very tied to the Bay Center in England. Uh, he had said, uh, hey, I got a slot open if you want to start teaching. And he goes, basically, you know, you got to kind of hustle your own people to sign up and you can put flyers out and stuff and, you know, just do your own thing. And I ended up getting quite a few students. 
but at the time it was me, Jeff, Gary Willis, yeah. and Baba Elefante. Oh, wow. You know, Baba, you know, yeah. I know Baba yeah. really well, yeah. yeah. Great. He's awesome. And we were all teaching in, in, under the same roof at the same time. So I remember one day I get a knock on the door and it's Jeff. And he says, he says uh, yeah, you know, I want to look at some of your curriculum. You know, I'd like to see, I'd like to inspect what you're actually teaching people. And of course, the thing is, is that, you know, this guy was like, for me, he was like one of my idols, you know? And even then, you know, like, is it a, you know, I've, now I have a huge amount of respect for Jeff. He's like, you know, he's one of the guys, you know, he is the real deal. And, um, and so I said, yeah, sure, man. I mean, I started showing him some stuff and I had, you know, a bunch of lesson stuff with me that I was giving guys and photocopying people. And he's looking through it and he's going, yeah, this is great, man. I, 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 I love it. I love what you're doing, you know, good job. Keep it up, you know, and we just leave. So then about a week later, he phones me and he tells me that he's moving from LA and he's going to Clearwater and he's starting the player's school of music. And he said, look, I'm getting out of LA, I'm doing this thing. And he goes, look, thing is, is I'm starting this school, but you know, I still have a pretty healthy career playing and I plan to continue that. And I'm gonna be on the road a lot. And I need a guy at the school who can be the guy who looks after it and I can trust. And I want to give that slot to you. And, and it just didn't work out, you know, like it was kind of a financial thing. He was just getting started with the school and, you know, I couldn't leave LA, you know, for, you know, to be getting paid far less than I was even making at the time, you know, just freelancing around, you know, so it didn't work out, but I'll tell you what, that was a great feeling having him ask me. Heck yeah. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? That was a great feeling, you know, because I thought, wow, I must be doing something right, you know, because he's, he's hardcore, you know, yeah. he's a hardcore guy, you know, and, uh, um, and, and he's all about, you know, it being musical, you know, that's, that's the thing. So, um, but, but yeah, you know, uh, that's, uh, that's kind of, uh, I should do a video on the Jeff Berlin story, you that's know. Awesome. <clears throat> yeah, that's because I did another one of those story things on Jocko. Because when I went to L.A. in 1977, when I see when I first left Berkeley, I went to Hawaii, Hawaii via L.A. So I go to go to L.A. first and I stayed with a mate of mine there in Hollywood for a while. And then nothing was happening. And um, although I was meeting lots of people before I moved to L.A., um, uh, I'm, I'm in Boston and this girlfriend that I had, she said, come down to the Ron Carter gig at, at uh, the jazz workshop. Remember that uh, Paul's mall and the jazz workshop. I think it's probably when you were yeah. there, maybe that was gone by then, but I think that was gone. Then I hear they, I don't want to, I heard the older, I don't yeah. know, all the guys yeah. talking about it, you know what I yeah. mean? So, so yeah, but that was like in a great place, you know, like, and uh, so uh, I went down to see Ron Carter's man and Buster Williams was playing bass because it was the piccolo band. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. was playing piccolo. So Buster was playing bass and th this girl that I knew, she knew Buster, she was a good friend of Buster's. And so, and one of my other friends came down as well, a guy who was a bass player. 
And so we, you know, we hung out with Buster and after the gig, we kind of were talking and Buster's just like the coolest guy in the world, man. Mm. I mean, he's just so cool. He's just one of those guys that I felt that I had known him my whole life. It's really weird. And so it was really weird because he, he kind of moved in with us while he was there for that week we hung out so much and he was staying over in the flat and stuff and you know we'd wake up and he would put on a miles record and he'd be we'd be dissecting it and going through it and he was again you know like i was getting ready to go out to la and he said what are you doing like what what's your plans i said i'm getting ready to go to la and he said okay yeah you got to get in touch with herbie when you go to la man i'm going to give you and this is pre-mobile phones, pre-internet, right? So he gives me Herbie's special number, oh, man. you know, and I got the number. And so I go to LA and I'm, I'm settled in living with this friend of mine in his flat in Hollywood. And I think, man, I gotta call Herbie, you know? It's like calling a chick, like in high school, you know what I mean? You know, calling a chick that you thought you were gonna fail with, you know? And you, you know, like you're almost like hanging up, you know, like you for the thing. And I finally got the nerve to ring him. And it was like, you know, I, I, uh, uh, I, 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 the phone rings and, and he picks up and he goes, hello? And I said, it's that Herbie Hancock? And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, shit. I said, Buster gave me your number. And uh, he said that, uh, you know, you look after me. You know, and he goes, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, Buster gave me your number. What are you doing tomorrow night, man? Uh, nothing. He goes, well, where are you living? And I, I was living like right near Grauman's Theater in Hollywood, yeah, yeah. you know, right up that little street, up towards Magic Castle, you know? Yeah. And uh, so Herbie picks me up in his car. I'm not shitting, you couldn't make this shit up. Herbie picks me up in his car and drives me to his mansion in, in Beverly Hills. And, you know, he's, you know, invites me to dinner, you know, and we're hanging out and, you know, he kind of gets me into going to a couple of his Buddhist meetings, you know, so I got to chant with Herbie and do all this stuff and met a whole bunch of people, man. I, I met like John Lucien, Louis Johnson, Wayne Shorter, so many guys, Patrice Russian, all through Herbie. And there was like another guy, Michel Columbier. Do you remember this guy? Do you yeah. remember that record? Yeah. Joe, John? what year was this? This was 77. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, dude. 77. So the thing was, was that, you know, Herbie was like, you know, he, again, he was one of these kind of mentors. I remember him playing me like one day he took me home from, you know, he picked me up. We had done something. He dro drops me off of my flat. He goes, hey, listen, man, I want to get your feedback on something he goes you know you're a young guy and stuff and he had, he had been in the studio and he was just recording that thing with the vocoder because mm. he's the first guy to use a vocoder i don't know if you know, if you know that but he, he was the very first guy to use it and you know that i thought it was you do you remember that thing it was a very cool track although at the time i didn't really wasn't digging on him singing you know and it was yeah. kind of weird and uh, but but he then played me you know, of course, I said, yeah, man, this is, this is great. It's <laughs> Herbie, man. You're not going to yeah, say it sucks. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> but now when I listen back on that track, especially, yeah. it's totally grooving, man. I mean, Freddie Washington is killing. But, yeah. but then it was kind of like the singing and stuff, and I wasn't yeah. really into it. But he plays me that track with Jocko and Tony Williams. Oh, 
you know, four on six or something. I can't remember the name of the tune, but right. Uh, it, but it was on the album Sunlight, and and it was like listening to it in his car. Man, oh. it was insane. So he introduces me. He kind of hooks me up with this guy, Michel Colombier, who is a French guy. And Michel had only just moved to L.A. And uh, he was doing some stuff with Herb Albert. And he was, you know, working. He was getting picking up studio gigs as a writer, mainly, because that's what he did. And he had, you know, he, he put that great record together where Jocko, you know that tune Dreamland where Jocko plays that fretless and Steve Gadd is on that record. It's killing, man. Like Jocko's killing. So I got to know Michelle's son called Christian and we were about the same age. So you know, I used to go to Michelle's house and stuff and, but Christian, you know, we, we were connecting because of the age thing. So Christian calls me and said, hey, let's go to the beach today. My mom's come over from France because, you know, his mom and dad were divorced, you know, and, the, and he said, and we can hang, you know, and then we can go back to my dad's house later, you know. So we go to the beach, we come back to Michelle's house, and it, it's like a scene out of Boogie Nights, you know, it's right off Sunset, like up from the, the, the comedy store. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we get there about three in the afternoon, and as we're approaching this house, it's like we're hearing this music blaring out, you know, and I'm going, man, this is killing, you know. So I walk in and they're having a party and they're, they're listening to this great sort of funk groove that's going on. that's really loud. And I said to Michelle, I said, Michelle, man, what is this music? It's great. And he said, it's Jocko Pastoris. And then he said, Joe, he goes, this is Jocko. And I looked at him and I thought, I almost wanted to say, you're not Jocko. Like he just didn't look like, you know, he, he had like hair down to his ass and like, you know, he had like no shirt, no, he had cut off jeans, no shoes. Wow. He had like a, a snifter of brandy in one hand and a joint in the other. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, and then he goes like, he goes like, hey man, what's happening? You know, he just like yeah. sticks his hand out and I shake his hand and I go, I say something like, hey, my name's Joe and I play bass too. And I just go, man, you couldn't have just said that to the guy who changed the world yeah. about bass. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, this, you know, but I, I couldn't think of what to say. You know, it's just like, wow, you know, it's Chicago. <laughs> so I tried to, you know, make some small talk with him and, and he was cool. You know, I asked him about his basses and stuff and he's a cool guy, you know. And then I just started to kind of go, yeah, I just need to kind of watch yeah. what's going on here, you know? So we were listening to rough mixes of Mr. Gone and the track we'd been listening to was River People. Oh yeah. And, uh, and so the next tune that comes on is punk jazz, okay? Oh, so, and you know that solo on the top and I'm telling you, man, see, this was 1977 yeah. and you know, Jeff hadn't been discovered yet. Mm. Like Jeff really didn't get on the international scene. He was around, but he wasn't really on the international scene until Bruford. And that was about late 78 mm -hmm. into 79. Yeah. You know, at the time he was probably playing like that, but no one knew it, you know? So that stuff that he was doing on the top of, of yeah. uh, jazz with Tony, Playing that that the double time swing was just insane. Like no, like Stanley wasn't playing like that. Yeah. 
uh, Alfonso? Nobody. No one. It was new. And everyone was lined up in front of his stereo system just with jaws dropped to the floor. Yeah. You know, and I look over at Jocko, like Jocko's about two or three people to the right of me. And I look over at him and he's going, He's blowing on his fingers. And I thought like, wow, like, you know what was so amazing about that is that nobody thought he was an asshole. <laughs> yeah. He had so much charm. Yeah. He had a real vibe about him that like, you know, if Jeff Berlin did that, yeah, yeah. everyone would hate him for doing it. Yeah. They think, you know, what a what an arrogant guy. Or yeah. if anyone, I did it, anybody. Did no one get away with that? Jocko could get away with that. Yeah. He did that and everyone knew, like, yeah, this is the thing, man. Like, you know, yeah. and uh, I remember that, you know, when it goes in the slow section, so he sits down and, and starts playing those voicings on the piano. And he's playing the voicings and he's saying to Michelle, he said, man, check out these voices, man. He said, I was over at Herbie's place the other day. Herbie can't get anywhere near this shit, man. And he's playing this stuff. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, Wilt fucking Chamberlain couldn't play these fucking voicings. You remember Wilt Chamberlain yeah, is the first guy to hold the yeah, basketball, right? Yeah, yeah. He goes, Wilt Chamberlain couldn't even play these voicings, man. It was like, it was classic. It was just classic, man. I love that. You know, that's like, you know, those were the days, you know? And uh, that whole scene in LA with the baked potato and all those guys, like, yeah. you know, I, there's a video I saw the other day on, on YouTube that was, uh, I think it was Greg Matheson's band. Mm. And um, Abe was playing bass. Mm -hmm. And uh, Vinny was late to the gig. And it, like the video shows like Vinny coming in late for the gig, you know, he's got his jacket on and his sticks, you know, and he takes, takes off and sing. The band were already vamping on the groove. It's like a thing in seven, eight. Mm -hmm. And uh, Vinny just takes his thing off, pulls his sticks out and then fills in and starts playing. And he just kicks ass oh. like from the beginning to the end with total relaxation but it was completely on a different level. And those, those days in LA, yeah. you know, where I would be able to go and see that all the time, those type of bands, those type of configurations, you know, don't get that much anymore, man. No, it's a magic time period, man. man. Uh, Joe, before we wrap up with like your socials and doing everything, we just have three questions for you. And then Steve's going to start the first question actually. We always okay. like to ask our guests, we have these three questions. It can be artists, I do know. Yeah, artists living or dead. Um, and, and you've studied with the greats, but living or dead, any space and time, who would you have loved to study with? Obviously you've studied with some of the greatest educators, but anybody that you haven't that you would have really loved to study with. And actually that can be music or we didn't talk about it for Brazilian Jiu Jitsu also. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would love to study with Hicks and Gracie. Yeah, dude. Um, you know, I would love to study with him. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of good guys, though, you know, in that. But Hickson was such a uh, such an icon, you know, and still to this day is, is amazing. Red Belt. 
He's insane. You know, I'd love, I'd love to even spend, uh, you know, but I studied with a guy called Paul Vunak, who oh. really is the Jeet Kune Do guy. Do you know Paul? Of course. He used to live right down the street, and I studied with one of his guys, Brad, actually Brad Forbes, who Tony knew was a big JKD guy. So yeah, I've been, I've been into all that stuff forever. But yes, I okay. know Vunak. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So Vunak, Vunak, you know, he studied with Horion and Hickson. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the in the garage. The Torrance days. Way yeah, back yeah, way back, man. I mean, he yeah. was there in the very beginning. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, Paul, uh, I was training with him once, and he did a, I did a small group uh, study with, it was like, I guess, maybe me and six other guys. Mm -hmm. And he rolled with every one of us for 10 minutes each. Wow. Okay, back to back. Yeah. And he didn't even break a sweat. Yeah. It's insane, man. And I remember when, when when I rolled with him, he he kind of acted as though he was falling asleep. He started snoring. Oh man. Yeah. He started snoring, you know, like I was really shit, you know. It's like as I was rolling with him, I was like, dude, that's uh, so much, man. You know. And he said, Listen, man, he goes, he said, That's nothing. He goes, When I trained with Hickson, he goes, Hickson used to take my gi off and tie it around my head and then tie the belt around my neck. Just toying with him. Just toying with yeah, him. Just toying. Just oh, completely man. toying, you know. And Vunak was a beast, man. I mean, you know, he was just insane. But, uh, yeah, and I've studied some great guys. And, I, and even at the moment, I'm studying. I, but, you know, with the lockdown, we've had to stop, yeah. you know, which is a pain. But I study with a Brazilian guy over here called Ivan Maciel. Hmm. And uh, he's a black belt under um, De La Riva. Mm, okay. Uh, and uh, and also Brigadero, he's a black belt thunder. So he's the real deal, man. And he's a tiny guy, man. But you know, we'll it's just one of those things. Yeah. You know, those guys. You know, those are the guys who are the real deal. But musically, um, you know, it, it would have been great to have had the opportunity to study with um, with uh, Lenny Tristano. Mm. You know, mm. and he was the. You know, he actually taught Charlie. And he taught like all those, if you were in New York in the sixties and anybody, Lenny taught you. Wow. You know, and he was like hardcore. Like he taught like Lee Konitz and just a bunch of guys, you know, I mean, probably more that I could, I could think of, you know, but Charlie studied with, with uh, him for a while. Wow. And, uh, but just for the legacy of it, you know, to go back sure. in time and see what he did. But I think really, through the studying with Charlie. And you know, I've studied with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. He was such a one-off man. I actually think that he was the Hicks and Gracie, you know, he was the, he was the yeah. Dan in a Santo. Yeah. That's yeah. another guy I've trained that's, with, you know, Dan. Yeah, yeah. You know, Dan is just like, I mean, you know, Dan, like, and I, I trained with Dan, you know, when he was in his 70s, he's like in his 80s now, you know, it's like, Dan is like, he was doing like, cartwheel stuff, he's doing like capoeira things. And it was like, dude, you're in your 70s, like, you shouldn't be able to do that, you know. <laughs> but he would just like his energy, like yeah. Dan's energy, you know, you just like, couldn't people can't really train like he can't really train full force with a lot of his students because he's just so much better you know it's like that's that thing you know yeah. but charlie i think was at the top of his game i don't think there was anyone better i mean 
that's the, the material that I have learned from Charlie and then with Gary as well, you know, because I've been studying with Gary now for almost another 10 years, you know, pretty regularly. So, yeah, so I've, I've studied a lot of Banaka stuff. And uh, so that's kind of, I guess, my answer. I, there's right. probably more guys, but you know, I had to sneak in. I had to sneak in the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu there because I wanted to know. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, my friend. You know, Steve and I both like the MMA stuff, so you know. Oh yeah, John. Yeah. John, would you take the next question, whatever question you choose? I, I'll just go down the the list, Tony. We'll make this easy. Okay, um, living or dead, who would you like to jam with? Ah. Uh. Joe Zawinul. Ah. Mm. Whoa. I like that. Wow. wow. That Joe was Zawinul. quick. That was yeah. a quick answer. Yeah. And you know why? Because Zawinul, to me, was one of the greatest accompanists in all of jazz. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, you know, his blowing was insane, mm -hmm. too. But his actual comping, man, mm. was, to me, no one could touch him. Wow. No one could touch him in his comping ability, you know. So he would be the guy, you know. Okay. That I would love. I would love to work with, with him, you know. Yeah. Uh, but of course, you know, that's a yeah. That's a no go now. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's nice to know. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Tony. You got the last question there. The buddy. last question, and this, you know, me. I'm usually not the serious one out of this bunch, so this fits. <laughs> the best access who would you like to have a meal with anybody who would it be living dead musician non-musician you know anybody who would you like to have a meal with who would i like to have a meal with wow just a just a hang yes the hang man mm -hmm. you eat and chat boo, boo, boo. yeah i don't know that's like that's a hard question actually <laughs> to put by but you know it's if if i could go back in time at the heyday, but with me now, I would have loved to have done that with Jocko. Mm. You know, mm. oh, I, wow. I actually ended up having a, another story that I have. I, I actually ended up having breakfast with Stanley Clark once. Oh, and yeah, this was this was a great story. You know, it was uh, uh, this was when I was in Boston the first time. It was in the within the first two years I was in Boston and. I'm, Stanley was like my hero. Like I bought that shitty Marshall amp that he endorsed. Do you remember that? Yeah, I, I don't think know if you remember so. that. Like, it's so. like oh, that can, it's is this the one that did have a round cone on the front of it or something funky like that? I think so. It was terrible. It was like a really bad amp. Oh. And I don't even think he used those live. Yeah, he used yeah. kind of like, you know, he used kind of some kind of put together custom thing with a rack or something, you know, limbic preamps and stuff. But I bought that thing and I, what I did was I transcribed some Stanley stuff mm. and I took it to, uh, I went to a Chick Corea gig and I, I had this thing that I started to do and I started to get luck with it in certain cases where I go to a gig and try to go to the sound check to meet the guy to meet the guy I wanted to see, you know, mm -hmm. and get it on a different level, like at a yeah. sound check, like, hey, you know, I'm just a guy and I want to hang. And I, I and I did that with quite a few guys successfully. But of course, Returner Forever were like, they were like a rock band. Yeah. 
So I went to the sound check and the security man was like otherworldly at that time. You know, you couldn't get past anyone. And so, but one of the, the sound guys said, you know, he said, well, you know, maybe if you just give me the transcriptions and maybe you can kind of just jot a note to Stanley, you know, about, um, you know, you want to hang out with him or whatever, you know, and uh, you might want to write your phone number down and stuff. And so I went, oh, okay, you know, like believing that like Stanley would like page me during the gig or something, you know, and uh, just being a kid, you know. And uh, so I gave him the thing. And of course, I went to the gig and like, yeah, nothing happened. But a friend of mine got backstage and he said, he goes, yeah, you know, I overheard the drummer. It was when they had that music magic uh, gig with Jerry Brown was playing drums and Gail Moran was singing. And it was kind of an odd chick career returner forever. But but Stanley was playing and um, and Jerry Brown was there in, in the the friend of mine said he overheard Jerry Brown telling him where they were staying, you know? So I got the name of the hotel. So I ring up and I say, can you put me through to Stanley Clark's room? You know? And they do, they put me through straight through to Stanley's room. And I go through to his wife, you know, and I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering if Stanley got my transcription and like, yeah, he did. And, he wanted to tell you how much he appreciated it. And, you know, it just, on retrospect, you know, later on, I realized it was probably not true what she was saying. She was just trying to kind of appease a fan, you know? Mm -hmm. I said, well, you know, here's the thing, you know, I'd love to meet him. I, I wonder, like, you know, I bought his amp and everything, and I've been a fan of his for years, and I'd love to meet him. So she said, well, yeah, why don't you come down to the hotel tomorrow between, like, 12 and 2 and uh i think you know he'll probably have some time and you can hang or you know just have a chat in the in the reception area you know so i said great so i went down there i was there at nine in the morning man wow i was, there, <laughs> I was like a proper stanley stalker man you know it was just this dumb kid yeah and so and so I was there like at nine in the morning and I, and I thought, you know, I can't just, I got to hang maybe if I see him, but then, you know, got the courage to go up to the desk about around 11 and then put a message through and like, yeah, no, he's not in and this, that, and the other. So, so I thought, well, I'll wait. Cause they said to wait till two. So just before two o'clock, Stanley walks out of the elevator with a bunch of guys, you know, that look like just hangers on business people, you know, walks out of the hotel, gets in a limousine and drives off. But as I see him doing that, I like run to, I'm like the guy in, in, uh, the graduate, you know, <laughs> I'm like the psycho guy in graduate. Yeah. Like running, trying to stop him. And, and, and so I, I run to the thing and I say, and, and I go, Stanley. And he turns and looks at me like, who the fuck are you, man? And just gets in the car. <laughs> he has no idea who this guy is, you know? And he gets in the car and he drives off, you know? So I go back to my flat and later that night, I call the hotel and I bore the hotel receptionist with this story. No shit. Oh, 
you know? And the thing is, though, was that that hotel receptionist, I guess she kind of, I, you know, played a few of the heartstrings or something because- Not bad for you, man. Because <laughs> his wife called me back. His wife called Whoa. me back. No, yeah, I thought no way, but she did. She, I, you know, I thought I've written this off now. I, yeah. you know, but, you know, I feel really let down, you know, that Stanley kind of kissed me, you know? And, uh, but, you know, it's, he probably didn't even, you know, no one told him, you know, he's like Stanley Clark. He's like, look at me, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the thing was, was that she goes, she said, look, you know, it, Stanley had a busy time, you know, he didn't mean to do that. We're very much up on our PR. You know, he's into all the Scientology stuff okay. at the time as well, you know? So she says, look, come to the hotel tomorrow morning and you can have breakfast with them and I'll make sure that happens. And I did. And he was really cool. You know, he was a really cool guy. And, uh, you know, he checked out my transcriptions and yeah. Yeah, he kind of looked at him and said, yeah, that looks about right. You know, like, <laughs> you the I, thing, out, kid? my thing oh, at the God. time as well was like, was it right? You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. It was like, remember that tune Vulcan Worlds? Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. You remember that? That was like the tune that I really wanted to start playing bass after oh. listening to. And so like I transcribed it and I just went like, is it right? Is it right? You know, is it it's gotta be right? And he, yeah, that looks pretty good. You know, whatever. Let's have some coffee. You know? oh, that's <laughs> I like him that much more now because of that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's why I would say, I'd be like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> That'll work. Cool, but but it was just a funny story, and it, it also like with people who are fans, you know. Yeah. Um, I always try to go a bit of the extra mile. You know what I mean? And especially if it's a young guy uh, who kind of you know has followed me for a particular amount of time and yeah. has bought my stuff, my books, my records, and stuff. And um, I always like to give those guys a bit of time, you know, because you don't know how that affects people until you were the guy where you had those same things, you know what I mean? They're kind of immature in a way because you want to be your own person, right? We want to grow up to be our own players, our own people, you know? And, you know, I remember when, uh, uh, I, I hung out once with Bernard Wright, you know, the guy who wrote Funkin' for Jamaica, you know? Mm -hmm. Remember that, Tom, he wrote that thing, Tom Brown did Funkin' for Jamaica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wright, wasn't it? He was like 13 or something. The guy who played with Marcus, he grew up with Marcus yeah. Miller. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Bernard was telling me that, that when Marcus got the gig with Miles, like he rang him and he said, hey man, you know, you gotta get me in. You know, I'm like a homeboy, you know, you gotta, gotta get me in with miles and he told me he said marcus said no way man like miles would eat you for breakfast man and he said no 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 you gotta get me in man i mean we're, we've been through some stuff and he goes no not until you stop putting miles on a pedestal you couldn't hang five minutes with miles you know and that's what happens isn't it you know when you think of another guy that is like He's like a god. He's not human. Sure. He's you. You're never going to be able to hang with those guys at that point. You need to be on the same level as them. Now, you may not be on the same level musically. You know. I mean, I remember reading Zalano's biography where you know he talks very openly about how Jocko was quite intimidated to have the gig with Weather Report. Mm. 
even though Jocko was like off the charts, but yeah. you know, he worked very hard to keep that gig, you know, and to, to be able to hang with guys like Zawanon and Wayne Shorter. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, as much as we think Jocko was amazing, he was like, here, those, yeah. guys, those guys to him were, but he was able to hang on their level because he was able to say, man, I can hang with anybody. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, um, so that was kind of that's kind of the thing. But I I do give a lot of guys a lot of time. Like you know, uh, you know, if I've run into someone who is has has kind of you know something I did made yeah. a difference to them, I always give them a lot of time. You know. Well, mm-hmm. I can't tell you, Joe. This I'm tell I'm telling you this. I'm 53, but this book I got it. I can't tell you when, I, but it, it changed my life. It really did. That's and great. I, I mean, just you giving your time. I, I mean, I can't thank you enough. It's, it's been amazing it, for, yeah, it's special. I, I really am like, I was all giddy. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for having me, man. It's great to hang with you guys. And the great thing is that when things go back to normal and maybe I can get, over to stateside, then we can hang in person. Hell yeah. I'd I love that. that. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. Dude, I want to roll. I want to roll. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's. I want to get my ass kicked think, by Joe Hubbard. I think that, I think that, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's like, uh, yeah. I, just, I don't want to get beat up. I just want to have a coffee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll sit there, have a coffee, and watch Steve get beat up. Yeah, John, I'll join you. Yeah, we'll have flan and coffee and watch Joe, Joe Steve beat up. I want to learn. Yeah. Are you, are you training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? So I trained for a long time. I've taken some years off, but I trained with uh, John DeLao. He's a Marcelo Garcia black belt. And then with uh, Alan Goish. You know, the... Okay, yeah, I know him. It was uh, Carlson Gracie guys. So, yeah. Wow. And um, I just love... And did JKD forever, but I just... I, I love it. It's probably one of the best it's just it's just incredible i love i love it and henner i think um henner and one of them has a a, a gym over here which i i want to start going but then lockdown so is yeah but yeah, yeah i mean everyone but i mean the thing is is like in california it's like the mecca now yep it for is playing jiu-jitsu especially yeah. san diego i mean you got uh you have everybody down there yeah it's well how you know Chris Howder is still, he's got the garage, and Chris Howder is one of the Dirty Dozen guy. He, actually, my buddy Brad trained with him, and uh, he just trains out of his garage. It's called the garage. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't Jocko Willink have a huge studio down there in San Diego now, too? Jocko trains somewhere. I'm not sure where, but, yeah. I think Jocko has his own place in yeah. North it's County, it. I believe, yeah. Is he the Navy SEAL guy? Yes. He's the Navy yeah. SEAL guy, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's real good, too. Yeah, there's... And, uh, yeah, Keenan Cornelius uh, okay. is is in San Diego now. He's got his own gym. Nice. Uh, Legion Martial Arts or Legion. He calls it AJJ, American Jiu-Jitsu. That's awesome. Yeah. Just to piss off all yeah, the just a, just a, Yeah, exactly. Just Joe, like, where can we find you? Where can the audience find you? And Joe, I'll put I'll put all the links underneath you. So uh, let us know what okay. your uh, links and socials and all that shit. Yeah, well, I've got uh, uh, joehubbardbase.com, and then that kind of will take you to all the courses and books and everything. And then, um, uh, you know, my YouTube channel is Joe Hubbard Base. Okay. 
Um, you know, so, you know, that's where I put out free content. So if you want to kind of check things out for free, go to the YouTube channel and, uh, yeah, so, you know, I've got, uh, uh, various things that, um, I'm just about to release a new track that I did with George Whitty and Tom Breckline. Oh, nice. uh, I've got a very cool video, uh, okay. in support of that. Uh, it's kind of, you know. You need a video now, you know. Yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the way of the world. They didn't put the music out anymore, you yeah. know. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, so I'm it probably gonna do that. I just got the final because I use this like video guy. He calls himself a video artist mm. from. He's a Dutch guy. Okay. Uh, Rennie Velms, and he's awesome. He's done this just ridiculous like. It's like a journey, like his videos are just insane. They're really good. But I've got one already up on my YouTube channel okay. called Alien Nation, and that's with Tom and George, but I've done another one with them, which is a new track called From Dark to Light, you know, okay. so hopefully maybe emphasizing some of the stuff we've gone through now. Yeah, I love it, man. Yeah. And then um, you have Inst Instagram also? I can find you. Yeah, I got Joe Hubbard Bay's Instagram. Okay. Uh, in fact, if you go there, you'll see I've got some of my martial arts stuff up up there. I saw it. I was I was lurking. I was checking it out. Yeah, that's awesome. You see the, did you see the one, the recent one with the knife, the knife scenario? No, I, I think I need to see it. I, I was yeah, looking I, through and I saw some stuff. Okay, I'll check I, it out. I put, that up, I put that up yesterday. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool. Maybe too brutal for people. Like, you know, I studied. I, I I'll tell you, I studied with a guy called Hawk Hawkheim. Have you heard of him? No. So he's an ex-cop from Dallas, Texas, like an ex-homicide detective. Oh, wow. He actually was one of the guys who, who busted Henry Lee Lucas. Henry Lee Lucas was one of the, like, most prolific serial killers of the 80s. Wow. Okay. And, uh, and this guy, like, there's a photo of him digging up the bones of one of Henry Lee Lucas's uh, uh, victims. So he, this guy is hardcore, man, and he was a JKD guy. Okay. And, uh, and but more of a Filipino guy. He okay. he from the Remy Remy Pressis hmm. lineage. Okay. So I've got a black belt under him in Filipino martial arts, wow. and I learned a lot of stuff. That he's got the best knife stuff in the world, man. And a lot of guys get freaked out, like Ooh, knife, yeah. like you know, you know, well, you get locked up. I mean, you get locked up, dude, for doing that, like here, you know, and it's like, yeah, well, you're not going to use that unless someone's trying to kill you. Yeah. So you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, I used to, when I used to teach a lot of this stuff, guys would say, I want to learn how to defend myself against a knife, you know, and you get like some guy who's like a business guy, you know, like a yuppie, you know, who would show up. He's never trained a day in his life. I want to learn how to defend myself against a knife. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, here's, take this training blade, you know, and you see when you hand it to them, it's just a training blade. It's not real. They have an adrenaline dump just from looking at the training blade, you know, and then you say, okay, here's how you slash, you know, let's do some stabs. Let's do some angles, get used to the knife. Hey man, I don't want to learn how to use a knife. I want to learn how to defend against a knife. Yeah. That's why you got to know how to use it. Because what happens when you defend against it? What are you going to do? Like, you know what I mean? Like you're defending against the knife. You got to learn how to use that thing because you're only up against that if the guy's trying to kill you. 
you know, the guy flips you off in the, in the car, you ain't gonna, you know, you, yeah. if you pull a knife, you should go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That stage, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So it's it's kind of brutal, but uh, but um, the thing is, is that it's uh, it's all skills, and of course the Filipino stuff they teach the weapons to teach yeah. the empty yeah. hand, right? Yeah, the kali, kali stick. Yeah, the, um, yeah, the kali, and the, well, you know, different guys depending on who you study with will call it different things. Yeah. Kali, you know, with some guys it'd be a screamer, with others it'd be arnis, with others, you know, okay. it's all the same stuff. Yeah, that's amazing. It's all the same. Yeah, Dude. it's all. Well, this would be good, Joe. We'll be pinging you when we render this whole thing, man. You know, it'll yeah, drop, it'll drop um, not this Friday, but the following Friday, and your nineteenth episode. Okay, yeah, and yeah. Like we, how long have we been on here? Like, Look, I think two like two hours. hours. I love it, man. <laughs> two hours, fourteen minutes, and thirty seconds. Dude, this is total. This is go all night, man. This is the record one. This is the record, Joe. But, but the record. Beat, you you beat out the Bergantino. Yeah. But I got to tell you, man, it's been amazing, and just I, I mean, I just I learned a lot, and I. I oh yeah, this this was really great to hear everything. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Great to hang with you guys, man. You're great fun, man. Oh, thanks, brother. All right. Let's <laughs> up with all your stuff too. You know. Thank you. Thank you, man. Yeah. Thank you. So hang for a second. We're just going to stop the recording and then yeah. we'll chat for a couple minutes, right? At this time, yeah. we, uh, we say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. And we stay and we talk some shit beyond what you guys heard. So bye, everybody. Thanks for watching. Big Bottom. Joe Hubbard. Big Bottom. Thanks, yes. man.